How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jancy. Tim, it's been a while, man. How's it going? Yeah, it's been at least a month now. It has been, man. It has been. I mean, especially a month on this show, but not a month overall in other podcasts, which we will talk about in a later day. But... Man, I am so excited to get together and talk to you today because today's episode, we are going to be starting off our 2021-2022 season preview show. Man, this is going to be a great episode and we've got some great people we got to talk with. We got to talk with the guy from the guys from Bud's all, Bud's all Day Podcast. We got to talk to Chris Katugas once again and of course... Mr. Ian Mendez from The Athletic to talk about the Senators. Yeah, and I think like we tried to do last year, we're covering all our bases in our return to the Atlantic Division. And this is part one of two episodes. And uh, the second part will be uh, covering the American teams. Absolutely. Now, our listeners might be listening to this and might be a little bit confused as to why we said the American teams because originally how we were going to do these episodes, we were going to do it in two parts. We were going to do Florida, Tampa, Boston, Detroit for part one, and then do Buffalo and all the Canadian teams for part two. But after some discussion, you, you and I came to a conclusion and you brought up a really great point with these segments is that you felt that if we went with this, some of the stories might be obsolete by the time it comes out. And I think Canada, Canada, U.S. is also a bit of a natural break, too, that we had last year when we had Eastern Canada, Western Canada merged into the North Division. We had that really natural combination. I think Canada, U.S. makes a pretty natural combo, too. It does. And now that the NHL is going back to a full 82-game season, now that we're going back to the original Atlantic format with eight teams instead of the North Division from last season... Thank God, because I can't go through another year of being swept by the Oilers. I just, I can't do it. Well, the other thing is, is that I didn't realize how much I missed seeing every NHL team compared to, oh, it's the Canucks again for game number eight. Great. Yeah. I got to ask, though, because I got burnt out on the North Division after a couple of weeks. Was that the same way for you? Until about that last... 15-game stretch where the Senators really turned it around. Yeah, it was watching became a bit of a chore. It did. And honestly, I I question whether I really want to watch if had it not been the fact that we do this podcast. Frankly, I'm not going to lie. You could definitely tell some kind of those middle episodes from last year. You could really tell that both of us were not really feeling it. And there were definitely games where the game was like, I have to watch this end, but the Sens are down seven. I guess I'll do a crossword while the bleeding keeps going. 
Yeah. Or what about the 5-1 game versus the Leafs when you and I recorded that day? Yeah, that we took, that was a great game. We tuned back in and watched. It was 5-1, turned into, holy crap, they won. Yeah, I know, because what was it, 5-4, right, as we were closing it, and then it turned out to 5-5? Five, five? Yeah, well, we tuned in at 5-4, watched... Uh... Oh, I'm blanking. Who, who tied it up? Uh, Dadanoff? Someone... Yeah, Dadanoff. Was it Dadanoff? I think it was Dadanoff. I was going to say Connor Brown, but I think it was uh, Dadanoff. <laughs> that watch. It was a really nice overtime goal, too. And then, of course... Artem Zub, his first NHL goal. Was that his first NHL goal? It might have been, yeah. Oh, such a good one to go. Open I'll have to go back and rewatch the highlights from that game because that thing was freaking magical. I know. If there was ever hockey porn for the Sens, that was it right there. And you know what? It's actually kind of incredible. That's not the game we brought up with the Buds All Day crew. No, it's not. But... <laughs> I think we got to save that for that segment because today's episode, as we said, this is going to be this part one, the Canadian teams edition. So we're are going to turn it over and we're going to talk with the guys from Bud's, Bud's All Day, Chris Katugas from Montreal and Ian Mendez with the Senators. Without further ado, Tim, let's turn it over to Bud's All Day. <laughs> Representing the Toronto Maple Leafs of the Atlantic Division is the host of the Leafs podcast, Buds All Day Podcast. Please welcome to the show, Quentin Smids, also known as Sans Mundine. How you doing, my friend? Welcome to the show. I'm doing good, guys. How are you doing? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. You know, I was watching some Seahawks football earlier today, and obviously we took a big lead. So I'm really looking forward to getting together to do these segments, and I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm pumped to be here. Love, uh, always happy to talk Leafs, even though they're pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Unlike our team, at least your team makes the playoffs. Yeah, we usually make it, and then usually losing the most humiliating depressing way possible but like what i was saying earlier in our in our conversation i just every year you got to trick yourself into believing so i'll you best believe that i'll be uh full faith by april do you think that they found the most creative way yet to lose in the playoffs i think they could go up a level it is the toronto maple leafs like the way they lost sucked like they blew a 3-1 lead but that's been done before like i could see the leafs Somehow finding a way to get up three nothing in a series, you know, three three nothing in game four, and still somehow find a way to blow. Like like coupling a uh, you know a reverse sweep with a twenty thirteen four one lead against Boston. I feel like that's something that they have in their repertoire. But let's just hope it never comes to that. Fair enough. Fair enough. So one of the great things about doing this podcast, especially doing segments like this with people we've never worked with before, is that we like to do a little bit of getting to know them. And a question I always love asking, because I'm always interested in learning how somebody becomes a fan of a certain team or just in general how they became a fan. How did you become a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs? 
So it was pretty natural. I actually, when I was a kid, I didn't really like sports. Like, till I was like five, I was obsessed with punch buggies, the VW Beatles. But my dad was always watching the Leafs playoff games with his friends in the basement, you know, in those Matt Sundin, Curtis Joseph years. And I just wanted to be one of the guys. So I would just, you know, join him in the basement, pretend I knew what I was doing and, you know, watching the games. And then little by little, I became hooked. And, like, by the time I was six, I never cared about cars again. So I've basically since the early 2000s, I've been diehard Leaf fan, watch every game. And, yeah, it usually doesn't lead to much pleasure, but... You know, it's still been a fun ride for, for a few parts of it. Well, I know, especially for us being Senators fans, like you bring up the early 2000s, especially going up against the Leafs in the playoffs. You want to talk about giving us PTSD every <laughs> single time. I swore, I think for a couple of years, I broke out in a cold sweat in the middle of the night just thinking about Sundin sniping one past Patrick Aleem in the playoffs. So it's just like, oh, God, why? See, hearing you talk like that makes me kind of – relate to Bruins fans because that's how I feel about the Boston Bruins just every time I think about them I get the PTSD and I can so I can totally relate to you and then it, like it, it kind of sucks because when I was a kid I grew up and they actually won playoff games they won playoff series and yeah we had a whipping boy we had the Senators back then but you know since since 2004 as as pretty much every person who's watched five seconds of hockey knows at least haven't won a playoff series so we got to keep that hope alive, but it would be nice to see another Leafs Sens series in the coming years. Maybe not this year, but you know, year or two down the line when the Sens get a little more developed, I would love to get that Battle of Ontario going again. Mm-hmm. Oh, it would be fantastic. I mean, the fact that the closest we came in almost the last 20 years was 2017, because I remember when the Sens made the playoffs and all the Leaf fans started buying tickets in Ottawa thinking they were going to play Toronto. And next thing you know... Things changed. Ottawa played Boston in the first round. And next thing you know, all those tickets went up for sale on, like, Kijiji, all those used sites. It's just like, hey, you can't really count your chickens before they're hatched, man. Yeah. Yeah, especially after uh, Washington uh, put Toronto through the ringer that year. Yeah, that was... See, that was the one playoff series with the... Well, I guess the first couple years, but that was the one playoff series where you really felt good about how the Leafs did. Because... They were expected to just get stomped by Washington, and they were neck and neck every game. Like it seemed like every game was going to overtime. The you know the Caps were a Cup favorite, and the Leafs were in the first. Like they were all a bunch of rookies, so we're like, okay, these guys are like playoff performers. They're they're really coming out to play. Imagine what they do when they get a couple years of experience. But hasn't exactly turned out that way. But yeah, it is what it is. But you know what? Hey. I mean, I can't really talk because our team hasn't made the playoffs since 2017. So, well, what can we really say? <laughs> so, you guys had a good run that year, though. Yeah, we did. I know it's so heartbreaking that you know. And you want to talk about Matt Sundin giving us PTSD? Mention Chris Kunitz to any Senators <laughs> fan from that time, and you will legit just see the eye twitch. It's insane. Yeah, he was a he was a big game player for them. Unfortunately. So another question I love asking in these segments is always about the podcast or blog that said person either records or writes for. And I know your guys' podcast, Bud's All Day Podcast, is a show that I, funny enough, actually stumbled upon before we were even looking at the potential guests for these segments. And one, I can't remember which episode it was, it was one of the Battle of Ontario games. And I really enjoyed you guys' breakdown of the game because it was really a fan reaction podcast. And I was listening like, okay, you know, it's not the usual kind of Leaf podcast where it's like, yeah, you know, we totally stomped the Sens. It was, you guys gave pretty detailed 
explanations of what was going on and you guys were pretty fair about it. In regards to your show, I would actually love to hear from yourself. How did the idea come about to start Buds All Day? So Lebda and I, we've been we've been friends since 2008, and we bonded over the Leafs. So we've been watching games together for, what would that be, 13 years now. He lives out of town. Like, he lives in Kitchener. I live in Chatham. So we're a couple hours apart now. So usually we call each other after games nowadays. And we were just have like these two or three hour conversations after games and we're like, like making each other laugh and like just having a good time. And we're like, you know, this could kind of be a podcast. So we kind of had, had the idea mulling around for like a year or two. And then I was just hanging out with another friend one day and he just kind of really amped me up and got me all psyched up to start a podcast. And I messaged Lebda that night and like within two hours, Lebda had the William Nylander theme song made up. He had a logo, he had everything. And we, uh, so this was in about, I think, March of this year. And then we went into it. We're like, okay, let's try practice one one night and, and just make a podcast about the least goaltending situation and see how it sounds. And it ended up being pretty good. So we're like, let's just post this to Spotify now. And we put it out there and we kind of started doing game reactions every game from that point on. And it's been, it's been a fun ride. I love it. That's always something I've, like, I've always loved hearing about how certain people end up becoming podcasters because a we are podcasters ourselves for yourself like did you ever think because this happened to start this year correct yeah it was uh sadly it was this was the first year that we did it but okay like when it came to doing game re like game day reactions was that a idea you guys had right from the beginning or was that just an idea that came upon doing some episodes initially we just we recorded that first one. We wanted to see how it would go. And we're like, maybe we'll do a couple game game reactions. And it was during COVID. So we all had free time. Mm-hmm. And I used to always like, I'm a diehard Leaf fan. So after every game, I'm always looking for the post game content, you know, the, the, the YouTube videos, everything I can. And I was like, there used to be a post game Leafs podcast. Well, there still is one from Sportsnet, but I don't really enjoy it too much. It's kind of, it's not as analytical as I'd like. It's kind of got more of the, the old school mentality, and I'm not wasn't the biggest fan of it. So there wasn't. We kind of felt like there was something missing in the market for for post game these podcasts. So we're like, at least for this year, we're going to try it out and see how it works. And eventually, it just became so natural. Like it, it would only take us like an hour after the game, and we're just having fun talking about the Leafs, what we would do anyways. So we just decided to start doing them after every game. This year, we're not. Because right now I'm in Spain, I'm not sure how how it's going to work time wise to do every game, but we still do plan when uh when we can to do them after after each game. Well, how much influence does somebody like Steve Dangle have in that? Because I know Steve Dangle for the last I don't know twelve years or whatever he's been doing the LFR videos. How much of that has been a big influence on you guys watching him doing it on YouTube? Honestly. I wouldn't say Steve Dangle's been the the best influence. Like I watch some, I watch his videos from time to time, but I'm more of a podcast person. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing was that in the the 2020 season there was a podcast. I think it was with Yahoo Sports, and they had a post game one, and and these guys were like somewhat analytical and you know more forward thinking type of people. So I really enjoyed listening to that podcast after the game, and we just thought like there's kind of. For lack of a better word, there's more of the boomer post game these podcasts. We want to get more of the current generation podcast. Mm. So we just came upon it. Like Steve Dangle, I I used to really enjoy his podcast. I don't listen to it as much. I just 
I don't know. I, I feel like they've, they've kind of changed over the years a little bit. I'm more of an analytically-minded Leafs fan, so there's there's podcasts like Ian Tullock does one for Maple Leafs Hotsville that I really enjoy, and uh, there's just there's just a lot, of, lot more analytical ones, so I don't end up listening to Steve Dangle all that much, but he's definitely... I know he's an influence for a lot of uh, content producers, not just Leaf fans. Like, there's a, there's a ton of people that, because of Steve Dangle, like, there's a Habs fan that makes videos after every game. There's Flames fans that do it. So he's definitely started something in the industry, but I would just say for us, he hasn't he hasn't been the number one influence. So let's move along and let's talk about the 2021 season. And the 2021 season was an outstanding one for the Leafs during the regular season as they finished tops in the North Division with a 35-14-7 record. Their top guys all had good seasons with Mitch Marty leading the way with 67 points and Austin Matthews winning the Rocket Richard Trophy with 41 goals. Heading into the 2021 playoffs, the Leafs were the heavy cup favorites again with the added veteran pieces and depth to the roster. Despite the serious playoff ending injury to John Tavares, the Leafs found themselves up three games at one versus the Montreal Canadiens before they fell completely on their face, as hard as I've ever seen a team fell hard on their face, up 3-1, Montreal comes back and wins four straight. And following the playoff series, many people were then asking themselves, where do the Leafs go now? Because all the concerns that the Leafs had, Kyle Dubas went out and answered them, and yet they still fell short as they... Lost in the first round for the fourth time in five seasons. 2020 doesn't count because that was the play-in round year. Overall, what was the, your thoughts on the Leafs season last year? And as a Leafs fan, like, where do the Leafs go from here going forward? Have you ever just, like, read a man his trauma back to him? Just, like, that whole time. <laughs> I know. I was like, you just really made me relive that whole thing, didn't you? No, but it's... <laughs> It's fine, it's fine. Lebda and I, honestly, like, I actually lived with Lebda for a month, about a month after the playoffs ended or ended for the Leafs, and it was like, we, we would be like, okay, we're not talking about the Leafs today, and then it would just, one thing would make me think of Mitch Marner or Ross and Matthews, and we just felt like our blood would boil over again, so the scars have kind of, like, healed a little bit, but it still was painful to hear that, I'm not going to lie, but with that said, I think after the season, pretty much every Leaf fan wanted Mitch Marner traded. I was one of them included. I didn't want to just go and trade Mitch Marner. I didn't want to be one of those people who's like, oh, let's trade him for Tom Wilson. Let's get some toughness on the lineup. My my thinking was more, Mitch Marner's an excellent player. Nobody Nobody's going to say he's not an excellent player. He had a bad playoffs. He's had a couple of bad playoffs in the last couple of years. But the reason I wanted to trade him, or at least explore it, was to see he's making $10.9 million right now. And he's... You don't see many forwards with that. Like if you're not if you're not Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, you know those kind of guys, you're not. It's hard to be worth that money. So I wanted to see if we could trade him to. One example I gave was a team like Columbus, who was interested in Marner before. They have Oliver Bjorkstrand, a good first line player who's only making six million. So the Leafs could save five to six million. I wanted them to do that and just kind of reallocate the money around the roster and get some, you know, like a, a couple first round picks from Columbus or something like that. I didn't just want to trade him for the sake of it. So I think that's what most Leaf fans wanted at first. But Kyle Dubas is a bit more of a logical guy. He's thinking, okay, these guys have insane amounts of talent, and if you give them enough chances, they're probably going to come through. That's his lot. That's kind of what he's hanging his career on right now. So as you saw, the Leafs didn't really do a whole lot. They're kind of like, we're rolling with this core. 
live or die by them, and, and we're going to have to see if, if these guys can do it. Because we, we've seen in the regular season, this team is very good. They can win a lot of games. It's just a matter of if they can get over that mental hurdle of when, you know, when they're up 3-1 in a series, when it gets to that game seven, when, when they give up a tough goal halfway through a big game, can they overcome that? And you just got to hope with time that they can. So they're just they're kind of riding riding with the same guys. They made a couple upgrades around the fringes, but it's basically with this team, they can do whatever they want in the regular season, and no Leaf fan is going to really care until they won a playoff series. So until Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews show that they can carry a team through at least one round, a lot of Leaf fans aren't going to be satisfied. Well, I know even for myself, watching those games during the playoffs, the one thing I really noticed was that just the overall lack of urgency from the Leafs. And you can tell the Leafs are very offensively gifted. Nobody will ever dispute that. But you can tell once they went up 3-1, they were kind of just coasting. They were they were just, they were, that's the perfect word. They were coasting. They were coasting to the fact that they think, okay, we've got them up 3-1. There's no way Montreal's going to beat us. But Montreal start throwing the body. They start getting timely goals. And the Leafs, they couldn't score in that seventh game. I remember that plus Jack Campbell went full Freddie Anderson and just let pucks go right through him. I was just like, I, I'm sitting there and I'm watching it like, I can't believe this is happening. And I'm not even a fan of either team. Yeah, it, I would say game five, honestly, that one wasn't as bad for me. They came out good. They just had a few bad bounces. They got down 3 nothing in that game and they came back. So I was actually, after game five, I was still feeling good about the Leafs because I was like, you know what? We outshot Montreal. We've outplayed them in pretty much every game so far in this series. We had that ferocious comeback. One stupid play by, by Galchenyuk cost us the game. Come out in game six fighting, and, and we should be fine. It was it was about 10 minutes into game six when I was like, it, it was still tied at that point in the game, but I was like, oh, this is bad. Like, they just, Montreal just, I, I don't know if it was because there were fans for the first time or what it was, but that was the first time where I kind of saw those ugly demons of the past kind of rearing their head where you you just like oh these guys are actually mentally frail in a way and they they made a nice comeback in that game at the end but it wasn't austin matthews and mitch marner who spurned it it was jason spezza the 37 year old who you guys obviously have a great history of you probably love him as much as i do and yeah by the end of the game you look at the game score and and the Leafs had the higher expected goals that game they outshot montreal 14 to 2 in that overtime like they probably should have won that game, but at the same time, it's that killer instinct that Brendan Shanahan's talking about. Do they have it? Is it is it a matter of luck and Carey Price just standing on his head, or is there something seriously wrong with that team? So we're going to have to find out. And then, yeah, Game 7, it was I'll, – I'll, I'll let you guys in on a little something here, actually. Okay. My dad and I did a happiness hedge before the Game 7. We, we were so disgusted by the least performance in Game 6 that we both put a lot of money on Montreal to win Game 7, so that at least <laughs> – inevitably choked at least i had a few hundred extra dollars to show for it and i'm not gonna lie it eased my anger by about one percent but at least i felt smart on the end i was like yeah i saw this coming but yeah that was those were dark times for me oh that's amazing that's interesting that you noted that it was jason spezza that was kind of pushing that comeback because that's the second year in a row that it's been 36 and 37 year old jason spezza that's been the spark plug on this goddamn team out in the Columbus play-in series where Spezza's fight gets the Leafs back to the game. Like, that really says something about the top end of the team. It does. It does, I know. And it's... 
like I said, these guys, like Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews are 23 and 24, right? There's a lot of guys who don't make the NHL until they're 21. If they had if they had never made the playoffs till year three, we're probably not nearly as concerned about them, but it has become a bit of a trend over the last couple of years where, yeah, those guys needed to kind of have Jason Spezza drag them into the fight, and it was really disappointing, and it just makes you so much sadder for Spezza, too, because this guy hasn't won a cup. He comes home. He takes basically plays for free. He said, he admitted that he would play for free if he could. And to just see those guys let him down, it just sucked. Like, like Matthews and Marner, they did, after Spezza got them back in, they dominated that overtime. Like, Carey Price just absolutely stood on his head for that overtime. But at the same time, you, you're completely right. You want your star guys who you're paying that money to to show up. And those were the... Those, like, until that point in the series, until Game 6, I wasn't disappointed in Matthews and Marner because it just seemed like the bounces weren't going that way. But, yeah, that that's when I kind of started to get a bit of a doubt in what, what they could do as leaders of a team. So, following their playoff series to Montreal, many people were speculating whether Leafs GM Kyle Dubas would now be on the hot seat heading into the 21-22 season. And for all the criticism that he receives, I don't think... Dubas has done an overly terrible job with the Leafs as he does recognize what Toronto lacks and he did went out and addressed those concerns. However, for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem like it's enough for Toronto to get to that next level. If the Leafs do, however, lose in the first round next this coming season, then the Leafs will be forced to address Dubas's future as team GM. Overall, heading into the season, is it fair to assume that Dubas is now on the hot seat? I think it's definitely fair to assume it. If I were running the Leafs, I wouldn't have him anywhere near the hot seat. I think he's actually done a really good job. Uh, if you look at if you look at last year, what was the problem for the Leafs? We just talked about it. Matthews and Marner. Kyle Dubas didn't pick those guys. Those are his superstars. He paid them, but anybody with with a like maybe he paid Marner a little too much. We can get into that. But at the end of the day, it was Marner and Matthews who let them down. The pieces that Dubas built around those guys, whether that's Muzzin, Brody, Spezza, you know, Campbell, I know he had a couple bad goals, but he was good, like, Dubas has built built a good enough team that even without John Tavares, they, if, if their two-star players show up, they'd probably sweep Montreal, so I, I don't think it's fair for him to at all be on the hot seat, but I think... I think he probably is just because that's that's the kind of way these things work. People don't really get enough of a fair shot when hockey's it's such a random sport that you can make all of the right moves as a GM and still be on the hot seat. So Dubas as a whole, I've loved I've loved what he's done. I've agreed with almost everything except the only things I disagreed with at the time they were done was the Marner deal. I thought that was, you know, one and a half to two million too much. And then the Felino deal, I was all aboard the Taylor Hall train. I didn't see why you would pay more for Taylor Hall than Nick Felino. I think he got a little bit too into the uh, toughness, leadership, all that crap. But those are really the only glaring mistakes he's made. Like, if you look at what he had to do when he got here, he had a lot of problematic contracts from, from Lou Lamoureux. Like, Patrick Marleau, that was an absolute train wreck of a contract. And a guy you guys are very familiar with, Nikita Zaitsev, that was a horrible deal. He's paying $4.5 million and he's worth maybe one. Like, he's – I, I I'm, glad, I'm sorry that you guys have to watch him every night, but Dubas had to come in and he had to fix those those kind of moves. He was a rookie GM. The Nylander deal criticized $6.9 million for William Nylander. Nobody in the world would take that contract. He was able to get John Tavares. Like I said, he got Muzzin, Brody, and Campbell, so – and he's drafted well, got Sandine and Robertson with some later picks. So 
I think he's done a really good job. And the main reason that I like him is that he's not one of those. He's not a to, uh, a Holland, a Ken Holland, a Jim Benning. <laughs> one of those guys where the second it's twelve o'clock on July first, you're filling your diaper because you're like, what what fourth liner is this guy going to give seven million dollars to, or what what six foot five defenseman that can't skate is he going to pay give a seven year contract to? So that's probably my favorite thing with. Dubas is I know he's never going to make the horrible move. He might make some mistakes on the edges here and there, but as far as like earth-shatteringly horrible Louis Erickson, you know, Milan Lucic, Duncan Keith kind of moves, I don't have to worry about that with Dubas. So I would honestly, I'd, I'd keep him for the next 10 years no matter what happens. And it's funny because you brought up a lot of good points there. And even on this podcast, we... we... We praise the Campbell trade. We praise bringing DJ Brody. We praise a lot of the good moves, and we did criticize the Nick Felino one. When it comes to, and it's funny that you brought up Ken Holland and Edmonton. One of my buddies, his dad is a huge Oilers fan, and he criticized the Zach Hyman signing. He goes, I can't believe we signed that guy with two bad knees or $7 million. And it was, I couldn't stop laughing. It was how he put it. I just thought, this is hilarious. Yeah, that was totally the right move. Like, we were, Lenda and I were saying it on the podcast, let, let Hyman walk. Like, everybody loved him. They're like, oh, can we pay him $4 million? Can he stay for a discount? I was like, his analytics are almost exactly the same as David Clarkson's were at age 29, and he, they're both coming off injuries. Those are the kind of deals that you have to avoid. So I couldn't agree more. Those, that's going to be an awful deal for Edmonton. Like, year one, year two might be okay, but down the line, train wreck. Yeah. I think the only point you brought up there about Zaitsev, and you said, oh, I'm sorry, you have to watch him. Honestly, I didn't think he played all that bad last year, mainly because he wasn't really a top-pairing defenseman last year. At, at times he was. But honestly, you watch him, and yeah, when he makes egregious mistakes, it's very noticeable. But I think because he's not in the media market like Toronto that he can make those mistakes and really it's just the local media that really just gives it to him about it yeah my my thing was just he's the kind of player who can look impressive at times like he's a good skater he's pretty good off the puck like winning puck battles in his own end but it's just as soon as it's on his stick he has no idea what he's doing with it and for me I'm I'm big into advanced stats and he is just consistently like among the the very worst players in the league so yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie and say I'm a fan of Nikita Zaitsev, but yeah. the Suns well, do have some nice pieces back on defense. True. Like Thomas Shabbat, amazing. Well, and also yeah, we got Connor nice Brown out of that too. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's kind of what I mean about those kinds of deals. That's what it forces you to do. Connor Brown would have been excellent for the Leafs third line this year. Like he, he could have slid up to. We saw it in Ottawa. He played a first line role for them. So when John Tavares goes down, if all of a sudden you can go Kerfoot, Nylander, and Connor Brown because Lule Morello didn't sign that awful Zaitsev contract, you're looking a lot better. But that's what those deals do. When you sign a Zach Hyman for seven years, in three or four years, Edmonton, when Tyler Benson's up for a new contract, they're probably going to have to trade him because they're paying Zach Hyman $7 million to get 10 points. So that's exactly why I, I like Kyle Dubas. If, if Kyle Dubas were the GM all along, we'd probably still have Connor Brown, probably still have Andreas Janssen like we'd have some more depth guys but when you got to clear out contracts it just makes it tough so coming into this season as well as numerous questions surrounding the Leafs the one big storyline is involving defenseman Morgan Riley and his UFA status 
this coming offseason. Since arriving in Toronto, Riley has been everything that the Leafs have ever asked of him and more on the back end with being the team being kind of thin on the back end in comparison to the top heavy talent that they have. With the Leafs, once again, facing a cap crunch due to the big contracts given to Mitch Martin, like you mentioned, Austin Matthews, and John Tavares, signing Riley will be tricky as he's most likely going to get a Thomas Shabbat kind of deal, like seven to eight million bucks a year. In regard to a Riley extension, how do you see the Leafs do this? Do you see them giving him a long-term extension or doing a bridge deal so they can work something out? I don't know what they'll end up doing. Uh, definitely not a bridge deal. Morgan Riley at age 29, he's going to get his bag. So I think it's just going to come down to whether Riley will take a discount to stay in Toronto. For me personally, he's an excellent offensive defenseman. He's based a lot off skating, though, so it really would scare me to sign him long-term. Uh, and he's always been a disaster defensively. Like, he's, on the whole, his, his pros outweigh his cons, but he does have a lot of cons. Putting him with a guy like TJ Brody, who's really good at defending two-on-ones and kind of covering up for his mistakes, is a really good addition. But if I'm the GM, I wouldn't go higher than four to five years, six to six and a half million for Morgan Riley. And based on what we saw in the offseason, there's no chance he accepts that if he has, if he cares at all about money. Like, if he really pushes for every dollar, I guarantee you there's a team out there that would give him $50 million over seven years. But it's just, I don't think the Leafs should be the team to do that. So if I were the GM, I would have explored trading him, especially when you see what a guy like Seth Jones goes for this year. I'm not saying Morgan Riley would get the same package, even though he's probably better than Seth Jones. But well, remember just because Seth Jones got eight by eight. Yeah, Dougie exactly. Doug is definitely the better player. Oh, significantly better. Like, I would. One of my plans for the Leafs offseason was to trade Riley and then sign Dougie Hamilton, but <laughs> that didn't happen. But uh, no, I think, honestly, the Leafs, I would. There's a lot of people that are, you know, the term own rental. They really don't want to do that again. They don't want to have Morgan Riley and lose him for nothing at the end of the year. And the example they bring up is JVR all the time because a couple years ago, JVR was on the last year of his deal. The Leafs knew they weren't going to sign him. And they kept him for the playoff run, and they lost in the first round. And everybody's like, oh, we lost JVR for nothing. But they forget to take into account that we were a 105-point team. So you're not just going to trade a guy and make your team worse. And they use that free money to get John Tavares. So how bad could you really be? So with Morgan Riley, I probably would look at a trade for now. If they can get you know a first-rounder and a good prospect and then have all that cap space where it allows them to, to make a move for another guy, I would definitely look at that, but if they just have to ride it out with him for the year and, and let him go, that's it's better than overpaying a guy for seven years. Hmm. Is there a chance that the John Tavares contract morphs into a disaster contract in the next three years, given it's $11 million, a no-move contract, and that concussion looked bad? Oh, there's, def there's always a chance. With any deal that's that expensive, um, Tavares has already... He's already declined a little bit. Like He's still... I think he's still like a, a first-line center by default. Like he's definitely in the top 30 centers in the league, probably top 20. But, yeah, that's got, that's got downside potential. That's kind of what you get in free agency, though. Like the first couple years, although we didn't get any playoff round wins out of it, he was worth more than $11 million. Like his first year, he got 47 goals. He was, he was incredible. But, yeah, with that, with that deal, if he, if he does have lingering effects from that concussion and he's not a first-line center this year, then it's already – it's already a pretty bad deal in the books, but most Leaf fans are just kind of hoping that he can maintain the play that he had last year, be around a point a game, you know, pot, like pretty solid defensively again, and 
He'd be like a 70-point guy for the next couple years. And if for the last two years you're paying $11 million for a second-line center who puts up, you know, 60, 65 points, so be it. That's kind of the price you pay. So I am scared of the injury, though. I'm not going to lie. If I think I think he'll be okay. We've seen a lot of guys come back from concussions. Look at Sidney Crosby. Like, he was out for years with a concussion. Tavares doesn't have a really long history of concussions, so I'm hopeful. But, yeah, I'm a little scared, to put it, to put it briefly. Well, and honestly, just when I saw the hit, I remember thinking, like, holy crap. Like, I'm amazed, like, he even got up. When you, when you, and the training staff has to come out and get you, it's like, this is serious. Because I didn't realize how serious it was until I saw it on the replay, and I was like, oh my god, when you see him get hit. It was bad. Well, you saw the whites of his eyes and nothing else. And that yeah, was like, scary. just... To see him before Game Six skating on the ice, like that was so good to see. I was so excited. Like I think he was going to come back for Round Two if he he almost played Game Seven. I'm pretty sure. Like I don't think he was like actually they were really considering, but he was. If Game Seven were a couple days later, I think he may have played. So hopefully that means that it wasn't as bad as it looked. Maybe it just seemed worse in the moment. And I think he actually hurt his like hamstring or something when they were when they were handling him. So. I'm hopeful that he's going to be okay. He's been posting a lot on social media, so at, at least from a from a human perspective, it, it clearly didn't mess him up. And, and like that's what you're scared of in the moment. You're you're not even worried about the hockey game, although it really did suck. I'm not going to lie, but you're more worried about like his kids are watching this. Is he going to be able, you know, to be a good dad anymore? And it looks like at least he's going to have that. Now I hope he if he gets another concussion in his career, I hope he considers, you know, maybe hanging them up because you don't want to. We've seen it with too many NFL players where their lives after football are terrible. You don't want somebody risking that, but yeah, it's I'm, I'm hopeful he can come back and be be himself again. So, including Morgan Riley, the Leafs also have to deal with goaltender Jack Campbell and his impending UFA status as well this coming offseason. Campbell really came through big time for Toronto last season, winning the starting job over Frederick Anderson, posting a 17-3-2 record with a 9-21 save percentage while posting a 181 goals against average and a .934 save percentage in the playoffs. Unlike Riley, though, I don't see Jack Campbell getting 7-8 million per. I do see him getting a much well-deserved extension, in 2022 overall like what has been your thoughts on jack campbell's tenure as a leaf and as a leaf fan what contract would you be happy seeing the leafs give him i love jack campbell like he was exactly what we needed as a goalie all year like we should have we should have ended up winning with him although we didn't but uh, overall like i think i think the leafs and campbell kind of did the right thing in not signing a deal now he just doesn't really have the track record yet i think it'd be good to see him in a full season see how he shares that role with Mrazek. is he playing 40 games 50 games and if he puts up another season somewhat similar to last year where he plays you know 45 games posts a save percentage around 915 or higher like doesn't hurt the team at all I'd be happy giving him a deal similar to Morazic's, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit more years, but he will be 29 at the end of the year. I think he might be 30 at the end of the year. And I, my my thing with goalies is I, I want every year to be kind of like what the Leafs have now, where you're paying two guys under $4 million. That way, goalies are so random. You know, at any time, any goalie can just become a sieve. So... If you have two options that you have a reliable amount of faith in, I think that's kind of the way to go. We've seen a lot of teams have success doing that. So if Jack Campbell 
could put up similar numbers, something like a three three year, four million dollar a year deal or something like that. I'd be perfectly comfortable with that. Well, I know even look at our situation with the Senators where you had how many goalies last year where there would be Matt Murray, Joey Decord, Philip Gustafson, and it's really more of a who do you really go to now? But with Toronto, it seems like they found, I, I wouldn't say a super long-term starting in Jack Campbell, but I think, and we talked about this earlier, Tim and I both praised the Jack Campbell trade because you saw what he did very, in very limited numbers in the NHL. And he's like, okay, he's a pretty good backup. Will this translate to being a starting job? And he proved it. I mean, honestly, without him, I think Toronto would have had a really tough time making the playoffs, even in that weak North division that he they were in. Yeah, I think I def- they definitely wouldn't have ran away with the division. Like, Freddie was was really uh, tumbling our points there before he uh, he left with an injury. But, heck, maybe if we didn't have Jack Campbell, maybe we would have got to face Edmonton or Winnipeg in the first round and won. So <laughs> maybe we shouldn't have had him. But, um, no, he, he, he really came through. And like I said earlier, it's just a matter of sample size. If we can see a bit more of that from him for another year, he's looked good most of his years in the NHL. So I'm, I'm hopefully he can kind of do the same thing. I don't expect him to be 923 save percentage again, but – the Leafs do play a style that it was kind of conducive to having a higher save percentage. So his goal saved above expected by the advanced metrics wasn't actually crazy high. So I think it's reasonable to expect a somewhat similar season from him. And if he turns into a pumpkin, that's why they signed Morazic. They have two guys where you don't have 100% confidence in them, but you can be pretty confident that by day one of the playoffs, at least one of them should be able to give you a reliable start. So one name that really caught a lot of people's attention this offseason was the Leafs giving former Islanders first-round pick Josh Hosang a professional tryout. Hosang has been a guy who has struggled mightily at the pro level to find his game in the NHL, whether it was due to his play or his attitude or whatever you want to talk about when it comes to Hosang is really up for debate. So coming into this season, though, he's really... He, he's definitely given a second chance at this and to get his career back on track in a team. He's coming home. Like you talked about Jason Spetsa, he's coming home to Toronto. What have been your thoughts on Ho Sang as a player? And what do you think the odds are of Joshua Sang making the Toronto Maple Leafs in 21-22? It's going to be tough to make it out of camp because they have a lot of bodies there. Like they signed Andre Cashin, Nick Ritchie. Those guys are, if they're healthy, they're guaranteed to be in the lineup. Same with David Kampf. Like, I know they lost Thornton and a couple guys, but spots are few and far between. Like, a guy like Pierre Engvall may not even be on the on the starting lineup for, for the first game of the year. So, it'll be tough for him to make it, but this is kind of what the Leafs have had to do. Like we said with those big Marner, Matthews, Tavares contracts, you kind of got to sign as many of these guys that are, I wouldn't call them high risk because he doesn't really have any risk attached. If he's not good, he, he just goes, but high variance guys where, yeah, he could be a reliable fourth, third, fourth liner for you, or he could be in the ECHL or he could be back in Russia or something. So I'm hopeful. I love, I always love taking a chance on guys with skill. You never know, maybe. And especially he had attitude problems. So maybe he gets his head on straight. Maybe he works with the Leafs development staff. We know that they've got one of the better development staffs in the league, whether that's for skating or, or whatever it may be, but I think I think it's always a good idea to give a guy a chance. I know a lot of people have been clamoring for him to get a chance around the NHL just because they've seen the skill he has. They kind of think maybe he, he didn't get quite a fair shake in New York, but 
I don't know. I, I'm 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 a bit skeptical of him making it. But if he if he really has that skill, who knows? He could be a all the, like. I also wouldn't be terribly shocked if he played a few games on the second line for the Leafs. Just like Galchenyuk came from out of nowhere to be a second liner for the Leafs. Well, Ho Sang definitely is a guy. He's a very low risk, high reward player because you see how talented this guy was at the junior level, and there was even some scouts during the 2015 draft that said Ho Sang should have been drafted over Carmen David. I know in 2021 that seems like such a crazy thing to think, but they said, like, this kid's talent is just so unbelievable. You can't believe. And, yes, they mentioned that his attitude was a bit of an issue. And, yes, some of the off-ice stuff was a big red flag. And I think maybe that's why teams were kind of hesitant to take him very highly as he was. Yeah, and who knows? If, if it works out, like, he's had, he's had some good seasons in the AHL where he put up, you know, close to a point a game. If he can be... It's just like like I said, you just have to sign as many of these guys that are willing to come, and you just gotta hope some of them stick. Like the big guy for me that they signed in the offseason that I'm hopeful about is Andre Kasha. He was a really good second liner for Winnipeg. Boston trades a first first round pick for him, and he gets hurt, and he's not the same. But if he can come back and be the Anaheim version of himself, like that would be monumental for the Leafs. They need they need a guy like him or a guy like Michael Bunting, Nick Ritchie. They need at least a couple of these guys. To be able to fill a pretty substantial role, otherwise they're going to have to add some some forward depth at the deadline. But adding a guy like Hosang can't hurt, and they've got you know they're hoping for a bounce back year from Mikheyev, even though he has to be traded the other day or whatever. But there's just a lot of a lot of wild cards outside of the top four, like the core four on the least forward group. And that's just a necessity of the teams, it like uh, salary structure, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you, you look at Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, they're able to make Joe Thornton look like a first-liner for the first couple months of the season. So that's what those guys should be able to do. You're, you're getting paid that kind of money. Take Josh Hosang and get make him a 40-point player. Like, take Zach Hyman and make him look phenomenal, and they did that. Now, that a lot of that credit goes to Zach Hyman as well, but, I mean, I'm pretty sure – no, I, this, I hate when people say this, but I'm pretty sure I could have got 15 points playing with Matthews and Martin. Just plant my ass in front of the net and hope I'm best. <laughs> Not actually, though. I, I would probably just get hit by everybody and fall down, but same thing. Fair enough. So, Tim, do you have any comments you want to make before we close out this segment? You know, I actually didn't hear that Zach Hyman – sorry, not Zach Hyman. Uh, Mikheyev wanted out. Did he say anything about that? or There was a uh... – it was Elliot Friedman piece. He said that um, Mikheyev requested a trade in the offseason, and the Leafs said, no, they, they, they believe in him or they, they think he's a part of the team. It's because he, he said he had too small of a role with the team. He wanted to go some, somewhere where he'd have a better opportunity. But in my opinion, he got a chance. Like He got to play a few games with, with Tavares and them in the past, and he just didn't – like he, he can get breakaways. He can create stuff for himself, but he never finishes. So mm. I have, I think the Leafs probably were interested in keeping him too because he had that big wrist injury, which took him out. And it can take – like I've heard it can take over a year for, for that range of motion to come back in the wrist. So I think some people are kind of hoping that he regains his shooting touch a little bit, has a little more puck luck, and he could be a guy that puts up 30, 35 points for us. So Sans, yeah. I can't. Sorry, Tim. So Sans, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to join us for this segment. Now, before we let you go, first of all, where can the people or our listeners find you on social media, and where can they find the Buds All Day podcast? 
So on social media, the the main if you want to follow me for for my hockey takes, go to the at Buds All Day Cast on Twitter. I'm very active there. I talk a lot about the Leafs, but I also talk a lot about kind of Habs fans get mad at me because I kind of try to troll Habs fans, and I you know I give my opinion when I think they made a bad move. I'm going to call it out. So. I go there. I'm also at Sats Mundine, but like I said, if you want to follow for the hockey, go to at Buds All Day Cast on Twitter. And uh, yeah, whenever whenever the Leafs play the Sens, if you if you want to follow us on Spotify at the Buds All Day Podcast, we uh, we usually do post game reactions, and we try to. We're obviously we're Leaf fans. We're going to be a little bit biased from time to time, but we do try to take kind of an even keeled look at it and make sure we, you know, we give credit where it's due. We're gonna. If Josh Norris has a good game, I'm a Josh Norris fan. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Josh Norris had a good game. And one final thing before we close out this segment, and I know that with the NHL finally going back to a full 82 game season and all the teams going back to their original divisions, how do you see the Toronto Maple Leafs finishing in the Atlantic Division this coming April? I think that the Leafs will finish second. I think Tampa, even though they lost that entire third line. I think it's just hard to bet against a team that was able to be so good without Kucherov for the whole year last year. When you have a goalie like Vasilevsky, I've, I'm not going to bet against the Tampa Bay Lightning, but I do look at the other teams in the division, like Boston, you know, Bergeron. I know we say it every year, but he's 36. He's getting old. Marcian's getting old. Tukarast isn't on the team anymore, and they could take a step back, and they weren't even as good as the Leafs in the regular season last year. And then you have a team like Florida, who, while they had a good year last year, they're relying on... Bobrovsky and a rookie in net. Like people talk about the Leafs goaltending being able to turtle. Florida could go anywhere. And then Montreal, I'll just be honest with you guys. I, I don't think they're that good. I never thought they were that good. I think Dano was a huge part of them too, and he's gone. So I see the Leafs not comfortably, but I see them probably finishing in second place in the division. Where do you guys have the sends going before before you let me go? Ooh. I mean it's gonna be tough. I would say Depends how we play. I say maybe fifth or sixth in the division. However, the hot take is I think if Boston completely craters into the earth, we might sneak into the playoffs at number four. I think it, I think a lot of it will depend on goaltending. If you guys get better goaltending than Montreal and Boston, I'd say I'd say Montreal more than Boston. I think Boston until they fall, I'm going to continue to have faith in them. But I, I my hot take would be I can see Ottawa finishing ahead of Montreal. Yeah. I don't think that's even a hot take this year. Uh, Montreal's just lost too much, and then uh, throwing away their first like that definitely doesn't help. And then with Ottawa, you've got it's high variance. Like if uh, what we saw at the end of last year is what we get, plus good goaltending, then a fourth place fin- fourth place finish, eighth in the conference isn't out of the question. Yeah, you take the lot, like you take the first month of the year out of the picture, and they would have made the playoffs in the North Division. They were they were way better than Montreal after the first month. So I could I could definitely say I did, a lot of it will depend on Matt Murray or whoever you guys go with in net because Murray was an absolute tire fire last year. But goal, like I said, goalies are random. So you guys get a hot goalie, yeah, I'm not gonna like Josh Norris breaks out, Kachuk has a breakout year. Like I could see anything can happen. It's the NHL. Fair enough. Well, what's funny about Norris is that he's already. At elite two with the center, it's kind of insane, and he's twenty. Yeah, that was that was a phenomenal trade by you guys. Yeah. Sands, thanks so much for doing this.
right. Representing La Canadienne of the Atlantic Division is a high school vice principal and a returning guest to the show. Please welcome back to the show, making his second appearance with us from Victoria, BC, Chris Katugas. Chris, how are you, my friend? Welcome back to the show. Fantastic. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, man. You know what? We had such a fun time last time, and I know how much you love hearing me say nice things about the Habs after all these years. So we figured we got to get you back on the podcast because you know we're going to say more nice things about it. So it's been great, and we're very happy to have you back. Well, I'm happy to be back. I would think that uh, after the season that Montreal had last year, you wouldn't want to have me back on the on the podcast to gloat, but but here I am. No, we figured. You know what? I know you. After that season, I know you would have said yes, regardless if we had asked. <laughs> so now, Chris, again, I, we're very excited to have you back on. Now, before we get into any of the Hab stuff, we got to get a little bit of an update of what you've been up to because last time you were on, I believe it was almost a year ago since we last spoke. You outside of on our DMs. So I got to ask right out of the back. First of all, how have things been going since the last time we spoke on the show? You know what? It's, uh, things, things for me have been going great. But as you know, like my, my job, I'm a vice principal at a high school. And, and we've lived another year through COVID in Victoria. It's been relatively smooth. We've been quite lucky in, in Victoria. The COVID rates are, are pretty low. Um, and uh, we did so, so great at our school in, uh, uh, in Victoria here. Uh, in our district, so uh, it's been it's been pretty wild here, all things considered. It was nice to have hockey to look forward to um, and, and to watch at home. And and I know I can um, I can say a year later, uh, I've got two kids at home, um, Olive and Jaren, and in the last year they've started hockey, so they're both playing ice hockey now. Of actually, I'm back to playing hockey again, beer league hockey, um, <laughs> I might add. But um, it, it's been uh, it's been a a fun year, and, and I, I can say I've already been on the ice five times this week as uh, coaching my daughter's team, um, playing with my own team. It's uh, and it's still sunny here in Victoria, so I can't complain too much. Hundred percent, man. Especially where other places in Canada where they don't get the nice weather like we do. Now, I do got to ask because I do know that your daughter has started hockey. Has she been practicing her Shea Weber slap shots, old school in the basement? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember back in the day we used to play. Um, mini sticks Taylor and with our with our friend Kevin it was uh, she's she we play a little bit of that we're doing a little bit of a reno here so we've got an empty room and, and we're, we're on the knees playing some some uh, uh, carpet hockey it's been great and, and she is practicing a slap shot I have taken a, a stick to the face a few times so it reminded me of the old days <laughs> except back in the old days I couldn't get that that high so I just decided to just settle for your shins Yeah. I still got the, the scars there to prove it. Yeah, but you know what? Even though you got the scars, you got the stories to tell, though. That's right, exactly. <laughs> so let's get and talk about the Habs. Now, the 2021 season, that was one that, let's be honest, nobody, absolutely nobody saw the Montreal Canadiens going to the Stanley Cup Finals last season, especially after how their regular season went, going 24-21-11, finishing fourth in the North. Then going down 3-1 to Toronto in the first round of the playoffs. Following Game 4 versus Toronto, Montreal decided to shock the hockey world by coming back to beat Toronto in seven games, sweeping Winnipeg, then taking down the number one seed Vegas Golden Knights to make it to the Stanley Cup Finals, becoming the first team since the Vancouver Canucks in 2011. Should have been Ottawa 2017, but that's not the point. To do it 
building much goodwill with hockey fans. With this offseason being such a roller coaster of emotions, the Canadians this season is a team many have pegged to be taking a step back with the losses of Shea Weber and Philip Deneau in free agency. Overall, what was your thoughts on the Habs Cup run last year, and what kind of expect- expectations should fans have on them as we start this new season? Absolutely. I'd love to, to say, um, you know, a year ago when we were having this uh, conversation about uh, the Habs and what the season would look like, I'd love to pretend that I, I called it and that's the way it was going to be, but uh, that's, that's not what we called. Uh, but I was excited at the start of last year. I, I did think that Mark Bergevin made some really, really good off-season moves. Um, I, I know that, uh, I, I, that the additions of, of guys like Josh Anderson and and uh, eventually guys like Cole Caulfield coming in. Like Montreal had some good pieces on paper, and they came out to a pretty hot start to start the year, uh, and then it all kind of fell apart for them. And really they had a very average regular season, as you said, and, and sort of limped into the playoffs. Um, and, and that was, like, once they got there, and I do remember saying that like, you never know when you get to the playoffs what can be accomplished. And, and, and I know that Montreal on paper – Mark Bergman kept saying, this is a team built for the playoffs. You'd hear people say, this is a team built for the playoffs. But in the regular season, they, they looked like a team that was, weren't even built for the regular season. Um, so by the time they did get to the playoffs, it was super exciting. And, and uh, watching Montreal um, really um, down 3-1 against Toronto, and then all of a sudden grit their teeth and, and, and get out there and, and beat everybody's least favorite team, the Leafs, um, and really stun them. Um, and, uh, and then head into Winnipeg with, uh, with a bit of confidence. And after Jake Evans gets, uh, get, you know, gets upended by Shifley, they really, I mean, sweeping Winnipeg was amazing to see. And then getting into to Las, uh, Las Vegas and, and after a bit of a gap from Marc-Andre Mark Fleury, the Habs are in the finals. And, and um, I, I get it. No one would have ever called that, but... I mean, the team had some really good pieces, and they caught fire at the right time, so uh, it was super exciting. Well, it was definitely very exciting, even as somebody who isn't a Habs fan like myself. But I honestly feel like going back and looking back at that playoff run, and you're absolutely right, like they just stunned everybody. But I honestly think how different that playoff run would be in that fourth game of the finals versus Tampa Bay when Shea Weber took that four-minute major if Kucherov had scored in the final two minutes. I often wonder if they had swept Montreal right then and there, how different it would be looking at today. Right. And, I mean, it's, it's hard to um, it's hard to deny that Tampa Bay outplayed Montreal. Like, yeah. it, was, uh, it was a whitewashing. There were a few games where, I, I know game two, Montreal really, really held the play, and they were, um, and they just let it slip. Um, and, uh, but really, uh, it's hard to deny they couldn't have beaten Tampa in game two, they, they were the better team in that game, but overall, Tampa Bay was a juggernaut. Uh, I mean, they were much, much better, and, and really, it could have been a sweep. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, like you said, no one predicted it, and, and I'm not even sure if Montreal and the Canadians could have predicted that, but there was something special about the way Price and Weber led them, and, and I think that's um, hard um, like to overlook how much of an influence they had on the younger players and, and, and what a drive they had to make it that far with the storylines that, that came out after um, in the offseason you know that run was pretty special to both Price and Weber and you could see the team really wanted to win for those two 
for sure. And, I, and it definitely was very memorable for both guys. And, and we'll talk about it later on this episode, why that is. And a few minutes ago, I mentioned how Montreal built a much goodwill of hockey fans with their surprise cup run last season. And then with one draft pick, they flushed that all away with the first round selection of Logan Mayu. And heading into the 2021 entry draft, there was a lot of buzz surrounding Mayu and the situation he put himself in during his time playing in Sweden, which then he re-announced himself for the draft. And then Montreal took him anyway in the first round. And Bergevin's selection of Mayu, you want to talk about just outraging so many people for obvious reasons. And then as a result, the Ontario Hockey League suspended him for this season the Habs have said he's not allowed to participate in the rookie draft and the training camp. Now, I know this is a very delicate situation given your role as a high school educator. So, I know this is a delicate situation, but as a Habs fan, I felt it was only right to get your opinion on the matter. Right. There's, I'm conflicted on this one, and, and, I, and I'll share this piece here. Like, from my role as a, a vice principal, I, like, I have a front row seat to young people making mistakes. Um, obviously, there's I have a front row seat to some amazing things that young people can accomplish, but but also some really hard errors in life that um, that, that really have a um, an impact on both them uh, and and obviously others. And in this case, the young person made a made a terrible error. You know, I don't want to minimize the impact on the victim at all. I, I think I think um, that goes without saying. And, I also believe in, in people's ability to to bounce back from the, their mistakes and, and have the opportunity to sort of, uh, in a restorative way, give back to the world, give back to, uh, and make amends. By that token, I, I really think, uh, uh, you know, a, a kid who was under the age of 18 made a terrible error. <coughs> I really do want, want uh, Logan to have another opportunity to, to make it right and, and perhaps be a, um, a, a leader and... and and, and find a way to give back to the community. On the other hand, you know, as a Habs fan, um, it's a head scratcher. You don't know why someone like Mark Andre Bergeron, or sorry, like you don't know why he would would make a uh, a draft pick like that, knowing full well the storm that would come. At first, that when I heard it, I, I kind of you know I had my longtime Habs fan lens on it going, well, maybe there's a plan here. Maybe there's something in place. Maybe there's a, an agreement that, um, you, you know, the Habs are going to do what they can to give back to the community and, and try to make a statement saying, hey, this young person made a terrible mistake, but we're here and we're going to walk them through it. But the more I look into it, the more obvious that Montreal was trying to grab a draft pick at a lower, you know, he, he should have gone higher. Uh, if, if this, uh, you know, this, this hadn't happened, if he, if it wasn't, wasn't um, brought to light, he would have got drafted four or five spots lower at least. So Montreal, I think, tried to be advantageous. Um, even when they made the announcement, they said we're proud to pick, and, and like, and that, and that's a mistake. Um, uh, Montreal didn't need this. They, they are a storied franchise. They've, they've been the epitome of class. They've come um, off the you know the heels of a Stanley Cup final they, they really didn't need this in their world that being said it's done and so this is the next step this is where I'm at at least they're, they're done they have to make it right they have to go above and beyond 
the league's expectations to, to do right by by Logan and, and, and take take care of him, make sure that he um, is a, a, a contributing member to the community in Montreal. And, and I hope, I really do hope that there's a way for this to um, uh, to come out okay. And again, I'm not, I don't want to minimize the victim. I think, um, I, I think that goes without saying. Absolutely. Like that's very well said, Chris. And I honestly think that Logan Mayu. I think the thing for myself is that he did make a mistake. He is still young. But the fact is that when you hear the victim come out and talk about how she really never got much of an apology from him. Basically, she just got a text of like three sentences and that was about it. But honestly, when I look at the the media storm that came out after that, do you feel this would have been seen very differently had he been taken in, say, the third or fourth round? I think it would have been different. And I think if it wasn't Montreal that picked him, it would have been different. This was a major news story all over the country, and uh, and, and in Montreal, the news, the writers who are who are quite favorable to Montreal, they blasted Bergevin for this uh, decision. And, and I I think he should have sat out a year, like he asked. I should, I think the NHL team should have respected that, especially Montreal, and given him a year to um, to sort of pay for it um you know and i'll backtrack a bit i've seen situations like this unfold um and and uh, as much as as the victim um like i can't imagine what that's like for the victim it's no it's no picnic for uh it, it's no picnic for logan either he's he's villainized at a national level and and he's he's um paying the price more so than most young people um unfortunately do because of his stature as an NHL player, and, and maybe maybe we expect more from our, our you know our young hockey players, and I and I think we should expect more. So, um, but he's paying the price too. But if it was a third or fourth round draft pick out of Columbus, uh, it wouldn't have been the same news story. It's, it's the Montreal Canadiens, and um, and and if it was Toronto or Vancouver, I, I think there would have been something similar, but. Montreal in particular, um, this is not uh, this, this is not what Jean Beliveau would have uh, approved, right? Uh, what would Jean Beliveau do is something that um, that should go through the the heads of all the front office in Montreal, and, and I don't think he would have approved it. Absolutely, and I know even like I'm I've, I'm of the belief that I think Mayu will restore his image the way that say a young Joe Thornton did after he assaulted a cop. A young Joe, Jonathan Taves. You see some of these young guys that come out. But even with, and you brought Vancouver, look at what Jake Vertanen went through, right? Off the ice. And you see all the drama unfolding. I think for me, regarding the Mayu signing, I think the only, and another player I could bring up is Anthony D'Angelo because the Montreal Canadiens were linked to him. I wonder how much of the backlash they got from Mayu swayed them from signing D'Angelo as well. Yeah, Um, yeah, 
mean, it's, I'm, I'm tripping over words because it, it's such a diffi- difficult and delicate situation, and I, and I fully admit, you know, I'm, this is my perspective as a, you know, as a, as a white male, um, you know, I think that it's the year 2021, and NHL franchises are are needing to understand how even picking and and trying to backtrack on it what kind of trust they've severed with their fan base. So we're going to move away from talking about Logan Mayhew and talk about another defenseman from the Montreal Canadiens, Shea Weber. Now, coming into the 21-22 season, the Canadiens will be a much different team than they were in previous with some new faces like David Savard and Mike Hoffman joining the team. However, this will be the first Canadiens team since 2016 to not feature Captain Shea Weber as multiple injuries will keep him out for the 21-22 season. And it's also signaling like this will be the end of his career as well. Honestly, and I was looking looking back on this, like that one-for-one one trade in 2016 with Nashville sending Weber to Montreal and P.K. Subban to Nashville, I don't think five years later anybody could have imagined that the Montreal Canadiens would have come out as the winner in that trade as Subban has now moved on to the New Jersey Devils as then seeing Shea Weber become the captain. In regards to Weber, as a fan, are you of the fan of the belief that Shea Weber has played his final game as a Montreal Canadian? <laughs> I, I don't think he's played his final game. I, I think there's a little bit of um, gamesmanship here, and, and I and I think that um, I think Shea Weber's injured. I think his pain tolerance, and, and he has been injured for several years. I, I, I mean, he has not truly been healthy since he was traded from Nashville. I, I think he struggled with injuries this whole way, and I'm trying to recall if he played an 82-game season in that five-game Not that I've seen, no, so, no. Yeah, so he's been injured, but he, like his ability to sort of play through the pain is, uh, like, I've heard people talk about how remarkable that ability to... He Like, i got to say, he was injured for the back, I think, the last third of the season almost. He was playing like fairly injured this is not a, a, a new injury this wasn't something he picked up in the playoffs so I think um, he will sit the first you know well the first 50 or 60 games at least of the season and I think just like Kucherov he'll come in at the play you know in the playoffs recap they'll recap that cap space they won't have to spend it because it'll be just like Kucherov in the in the final in the playoffs he'll come in and play the playoffs for Montreal that's that's um, my guess, and that'll be it. that'll be it for him. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, you talk about that with Shea Weber, and honestly, I think as an outsider, I think the signing of David Savard really was the Montreal Canadiens signaling to the fans that they don't think Shea Weber is going to be coming back. Yeah, it's it's possible. Like, I I think they had to hedge their bets. I, I think the way. And I'd love to talk about Savard too. Like the way Montreal um, is sort of treating um, Shea Weber right now, like they aren't moving away from him. Like they're, they've mentioned how they're not um, going to name a captain this year, at least right not not right now. Um, they're they're playing a bit coy um, about Shea Weber. Maybe it's um, their best intentions to hope and leave the door open. They've also mentioned how Shea will stay close to the team. Um, I don't think they'll outright say, hey, we think he'll be back to the playoffs so we can cut a little bit of cap space out. 
Um, I think they're going to try to um, put their best foot forward. So they did sign uh, Savard um, to, to play that role. Their hope is that he'll eat up those minutes, um, that he's, he's a pretty big guy. Um, he plays that stay-at-home style of defense. And, he, you know, coming from Tampa where he won the Cup, um, they're hoping that they can sort of um, capitalize on that momentum and, and try to replace Shea Weber. But we both know or we all know that there's no replacing Shea Weber on Montreal. His leadership, his ability to step up when they, you know, when, when they need him, um, it's going to be a pretty hard um, – it's going to be a pretty hard, uh, big shoes to fill. Let's say that. But I, again, I think I think that's what they need right now. Um, but I do like. I guess we'll we'll see. Maybe we'll put a little friendly wager on it. Uh, is he going to be back this season? <laughs> yeah, I say yes. Okay. Well, I'll definitely take that he doesn't come back. But we'll see how he does to the end of the season. <laughs> so, following the Wishful twenty thinking from a Habs fan, I think. Right. I know. Following the 2017 expansion into Las Vegas, the NHL expansion into Seattle in 2021 caused quite a bit of buzz with the new team and the potential players Ron Francis could take for the Kraken. One notable name on the board for Seattle was future Hockey Hall of Famer Carey Price, who Montreal left unprotected in order to protect Jake Allen. When you were on last, we talked about Carey and what he's meant to the Montreal Canadiens, and after the reaction people had regarding Marc-Andre Fleury in Vegas, people had the similar reaction despite Carey telling Montreal that he wants to be left unprotected in the expansion draft. During the expansion draft itself, did you have any thought in your mind Seattle was going to take Carey Price? I did. I did think that they could take him. I think it was it was possible. I, I mean, when you are starting a franchise and you have that opportunity to take a player as you know as skilled as talented but also a, a leader like Carey Price it's hard not to think about it but I think this was a, a really cool calculated risk on the part of both both Bergevin and and Carey Price um yes I thought maybe Seattle would take him but I also thought at, like at 10 million dollars I think his cap hit is 10 million well, how could they take him he's at the tail end of his career he was battling injuries this year like, would they take a risk and try to take a carry price, knowing that his best years are behind them, knowing that he'll put Seattle into the hole for a cap hit that maybe far exceeds his impact uh, or what the impact he might have on Seattle? I also thought, hey, how do you sell season tickets? How do you put, uh, you know, uh, like of all the players that were available, I think Carey Price has the biggest star, you know, one of the biggest names. His wife is from Washington State. He's played hockey there before. Like, it could have been a really cool homecoming, and that's why I think maybe Carey Price and Bergevin said, let's roll the dice on this. They know they needed Allen. It, it was key. There's no way that they can be competitive without a, um, a really high-caliber backup goalie for Carey Price, and, and Allen showed that he, he could be that last year. So, knowing that Seattle would have taken Allen, they, they rolled the dice. And I think what made it a genius move is that it was a win-win. If you lose Carey Price, that is the way to, um, to say goodbye to him. He, leaving the team after a Stanley Cup you know, um, appearance, but he takes with him $10 million to do the team a favor. Fans would be so disappointed and angry, I know that, but 
three, four years down the road when Carey Price isn't as Carey Price-like as he will be, um, they'll look at that move and say, wow, um, they offloaded that contract. They said goodbye to Carey after uh, an amazing finish. And and, um, and Carey gets to go and play at home. So close to Vancouver, or sorry, so close to BC, Anaheim Lake, where you know his family is. It would have been an okay um, decision by by Carey to say goodbye that way. But alas, that's not how it went. Um, Carey Price is uh, still a Montreal Canadian. <laughs> the, the other part was they, they trumped, I mean, I don't know, did they trump up some doctor's medical reports that he was going to need this, you know, terrible surgery that could be career-ending? It was, there was a bit of gamesmanship there by Montreal. They uh, they made it sound like Carey Price was on, uh, you know, on, on his last leg, and and now Carey Price is starting the season. He's going to be at training camp, and and I wouldn't say he's good as new. He's still at the tail end of his career, but Montreal gets to keep one of their heroes, and and really they they get to you know to try to compete in that Atlantic Division this year with with another with the top goaltender. Well, the other thing with Seattle that's really interesting is just that is a very cheap team they put together. So in retrospect, it's pretty obvious why they didn't take uh, Carey Price. They don't have a contract on their books above 6.7 with uh, Mark Giordano, and that's one year to UFA. Any other contracts with term are low money. Yeah. They opted for the flexibility um, mm-hmm. rather than that, uh, you know, that instant impact. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know as much about Seattle. It's an interesting one, but, like, how do they differ again, uh, like versus the way that uh, that um, Vegas put their team together? And obviously, we know Vegas was super strong to out of the gate. Uh, that that was one of the factors I was interested in seeing. Like, okay, what's their angle? What's their avenue? Um, but I, I was relieved when they didn't pick Carey Price. Um, like, I'd love to see him retire as a half. That would be, even though it might be a difficult few years. I mean, he, he's bound to, you know, really slow up here in the next few. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm really glad that Seattle didn't pick him. During Montreal's playoff run last season, two guys that caught many people's attention was Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield. While Suzuki finished top three in regular season scoring for Montreal and Caulfield only played in 10 games, both players exploded in the playoffs, recording 16 and 12 points respectively, while coming up big time in the clutch. With this season being a f- the first full 82-game season since the 18-19 season, it'll be interesting to see how both players do in a full season, most likely alongside a guy like Tyler DeFoley. For both players, what expectations do you have for them heading into this season? I think we have big expectations, and maybe that's unrealistic. Um, but they're super exciting to watch. Like, Suzuki is, it was awesome last year. He was great to watch. He's a, he's a young center, but he's playing above his years, in my opinion. Is, is, he's got things to work on, don't get me wrong. But when the going got tough in the playoffs, he was right there. Um, and, and showing that he belongs. So, really, if he can capitalize on, and this is Suzuki I'm talking about, if he can capitalize off that momentum and start the year off and, and, and sort of handle the pressure of being, a, at this point, he's their number one guy with their, you know, with the loss of who they, who they gave up in the offseason, um, he's their number one guy. Uh, I'm hoping that he can, you know, 
rise to the occasion. And then you've got Caulfield, who's like, who's super exciting. I, I, my, my kids know his name. My, you know, my five-year-old and my eight-year-old know his name. Um, like, he's he's just got that face, that smile, and that like tenacity out there. He he's like, I'm most excited to watch Cole Caulfield on the ice because he just has a knack for finding the back of the net and. And he's one of those guys that has that it factor, and and you try not to overhype guys. You, you, when you're a homer, you tend like, and you, you love your team, you start to overvalue some of the players that are on it. But yeah, he's the Hobie Baker winner last year. He's he's proven that he can, you know, be successful at at every level he's been at so far. Uh, why not in the NHL? Well, maybe because he's got the stature of a Hobbit. He's super small, and and maybe. Like that's the that's the knock on him, but but he's just um, he's just got that tenacity and that um, and that energy that is going to be exciting to watch. So the two of them together, the fact that they had chemistry in the playoffs has me excited. Well, even when you have an endorsement from J.J. Watts in the NFL over Cole Caulfield, and I remember even during the playoffs, like yeah. he was calling it on Twitter. He says, "Man, why don't you guys play him?" And the next thing you know, he's in the lineup, he scores, and he tweets out, See? I told you. <laughs> so with the loss of Shea Weber, yeah. GM Mark Bergevin knew he had to try and get a replacement on the back end, which he got in David Savard, signing up to a four-year, $14 million contract. While Savard is in no way an upgrade to Weber, Savard does provide what Montreal will miss in Shea Weber not being there, that big body right shot defenseman with a who's very very good heavy shot. In regards to the Savard signing, like what was your thoughts when you heard David Savard was coming to Montreal? I think it's it's a good signing. It was what was available. Um, I, I'd say beyond Petrie, Montreal doesn't have a lot of star power. Um, they, they had four defensemen that were carrying the load throughout the whole playoffs. And so it is, it, it's, it's, you know, it's nice to have Savard. Um, like, I'm somewhat familiar with him. Like, I obviously saw him in the playoffs in that series. Um, but it's so difficult to replace a Shea Weber. And, and again, what he brings on the ice is great. What he brings off the ice in terms of the accountability for, for you know, the Habs players is that's irreplaceable. So, um, I think they're a step down with Savard. It, it's obvious, um, but it's one of those things. Like eventually, you're going to lose players, whether they're free agency or retirement. They could have done worse. They could have not signed Savard, and then ended up with a giant hole on defense that they couldn't fill. Yeah, and I mean, even for David Savard, I think he is going to be a very good player for the Montreal Canadiens in the back end, but. I wonder how fans in Montreal, especially French Canadian fans, are going to think. Given because if I'm not mistaken, David Savard's from Quebec, isn't he? I think you're if right. I'm not um, mistaken, yeah, I think he is. I think he's from Quebec. Yeah, he is from. Where is he from? Um, yeah, he's born in Saint Hyacinth. Where is that? In Quebec. Um, well, um, that's going to be popular. Um, I mean, I don't know if, if you followed that storyline, but for the first time in, I don't know how many years, maybe ever, Montreal didn't feel the lineup with a French-Canadian in it. So um, so th- this is a good homecoming for Savard. Um, yeah, like, I, I mean, that factors in 
whenever a player signed. I wish it didn't. I wish that wasn't as, uh, as much of an issue as it is. Um, so that's a, a bonus. But in Montreal, it's like the, the real language is winning. Um, like French is, <laughs> it's important to speak French or to have a French. But I think that if it was uh, a, a team of Anglophones that raised the banner in Montreal, I think they'd, um, I, I think they'd appreciate that more. Exactly, because at the end of the day, it's not the name on the back; it's the logo on the front. Well, yes, yeah, the logo on the front, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it like I I think um I I think right now with Montreal, so Savard's there, but they're really hoping that Romanov steps up too, and I think that he's going to be in that five six pairing, and they really want him to to get better. I mean, he's he's he lands those thunderous hits and. But he's, he's weak on, you know, he's got areas in his game that are weaker, and I, and I think that they're hoping that they're deep enough. They have, they have very little star power up there other than Petriot, but they're hoping that they're, um, they're deep enough to, to be able to, to play as a unit. But I, again, I think they're a step back on D from last year. So, with all the nice things we've been saying about the Montreal Canadiens, given we are a Sense podcast, Chris, we do <laughs> got to talk about an ex-Ottawa Senator I don't know how much of a palate cleanser this will be given how his departure in Ottawa ended up, but Mark Bergevin made the really ballsy signing of former Ottawa Senator Mike Hoffman to a three-year, $13.5 million contract who was coming off a down year in St. Louis. This is such a high-risk, high-reward signing for Montreal. It's a high reward because of the talent. You can tell the guy has the talent... He's really good, but as a when he played for Ottawa, and I mentioned this on the show, Mike Hoffman was a guy, he, he left you wanting a little bit more. Because he, he was always a consistent 20, 25-goal guy. He goes to Florida, puts up 40, which drove the Sense fans crazy because we knew he had that in him. But it's a high-risk reward because despite his talent, teams just don't seem to want to keep him. And the Ottawa situation, obviously, has been very well known, but... The fact that Florida, even after a 40-goal season, didn't want to keep him around. And, well, in St. Louis, it was a little bit more obvious because he was had a down year. But that's the thing. For a guy who's so talented, you would think teams would want to keep him around. And, while, like I said, I don't question his talent. He's very talented. Another big thing for me is that he is streaky. And I think it would serve as an issue. However, I think if Montreal uses him correctly, this could be a good signing in Montreal. Regards... In regards to the player, did you have any reservation when you heard that the Habs had signed him? This was a weird offseason where I think coming off a, a, a trip to the Stanley Cup Finals, you don't want to take too many steps backwards. And so, like, Montreal wants to take some risks. And it's sort of like having a, a stock portfolio. You can have a certain percentage of your cap devoted to, to, to a player – you know, that has the potential to break out. And I think it was a few years ago, I'll just say this, Montreal has a knack for taking some risks on players and having them pay off. Not that it's super risky, but someone like Corey Perry, like what they paid for Corey Perry paid off. A few years ago, it was Radulov that came to Montreal. That was a risk that paid off. Now, if they re-signed him, it would have been a, a, like a, a genius move. But so with Hoffman... He had 36 points last year um, and seven power play goals. And that's what Montreal's looking for. Um, so they're hoping that the culture in Montreal 
which which they feel is strong. They feel like they've got a good leadership group there. That a player can come in there and say, okay, I guess this is how it, it's supposed to be. This is how an NHL team is supposed to conduct themselves, right? Um, and and the hope is that someone can come into that as a square peg and and, and figure it out. So maybe that's the that's the you know the risk version I'm just taking. He's saying, okay, Hoffman has ability. People don't want to keep him, but we're a different club. I, I think that's their belief. Whether that's true or not, I think they believe if they can get somebody there, that the culture of the team will will turn them around. It doesn't always pay off though. It is true, and Ottawa has had players in the past that were very high risk, and it just didn't pan out for us. I think for myself, in regards to Hoffman, is that he's a guy, like I said, he is streaky. That's a big red flag. <clears throat> but I also think that if any of the issues he had in, say, Ottawa, or maybe some of the off-ice issues he either had in Florida or St. Louis comes up, that's going to be huge because it's not like... It's one thing if you do it in Toronto, because Toronto is one language, but you do it in Montreal where you have two languages both of them will just come on you and it's like you're under even more of a microscope in that city right and so that's the big game changer you're right the pressure from the media like you can't walk down the street in montreal so i've been told i'm not an nhl player there but you can't walk through the the streets in montreal without somebody having something to say to you and if and if things are going well they're your biggest fans and if if things aren't going well they like you know, they boo you. So, but sometimes that depends on what the expectations look like. If, if a player comes into Montreal with a giant contract and they're not performing, it's, it's a, like, they're smart fans. They, they understand the game on the ice and off the ice. And, and so if you're not up to the pressure, um, it's not the place for you. But maybe some players really want to experience Montreal. So by, like, by signing him, he he's obviously saying that he's up to the task. So let's hope that's uh, uh, let's hope it pays off. But again, I, I think I think this off season there was a little bit of desperation there to to, to maintain a similar product. So uh, I'm hoping Bergevin's right and uh, and Hoffman is um, is worth that 4.5. One of the biggest things with Hoffman is uh, he needs a really strong supporting cast. He- <clears throat> St. Louis kind of fell apart last year, so that that plus him being streaky doesn't help. Do you think that the center core in Montreal is going to be able to keep the thing t- together if uh, the wings aren't as good this year? Especially if uh, like you don't have Drouet, like Drouet comes back or has to go off again. Uh, can a center core that's Nick Suzuki, Christ- Nick Suzuki, Christian Dvorak, Jake Evans, and uh, Matthew Perot handle this? That's where Montreal. They're, they're weak down the middle. And I, I thought a year ago um, they had some promise there. And, and losing Deneau, um losing Kokinyemi, I, I, you know, that's where I'm, I'm a little bit concerned. Now, Hoffman, um, if he needs a strong center to play with, uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he'll be on the Suzuki line. So that puts them uh, with Evans or with, yeah, with Dvorak. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that either he's able to make make it work with those two, 
or maybe Montreal's got something left up their sleeve in terms of trade. Well, Montreal also doesn't have a lot of cap space left, and uh, given that was probably a key factor in Kotkaniemi uh, being ending up out of town, uh, let's get on to that. Uh, what was your first thought when you saw that offer sheet? Well, so I saw the offer sheet, and it was uh, accompanied by the tweet. So what I thought at first was, like, I I thought it was absurd. He is not worth $6 million a year. Not to any team. Um, I, you know, I I know I've heard Carolina speak out after about how much they wanted him, and I I know I've read some some articles about how this was a a good hockey move, but it's hard to imagine it as a good hockey move when um, it was accompanied by tweets from Carolina that really looked like, Revenge for Montreal trying to sign a home. So, it, it, so to me, when I first saw it, I was, I was, a, I was shocked. I didn't expect that. But then also thought to myself, at six million dollars, I mean, if that was what Montreal would have to pay, regardless of the offer sheet, I would have said no. I would have said no to five. I would have even said no uh, to a one-year. Yeah, even even four. I don't. I mean, he's only scored he scored five goals last year, or is it five goals total? Like he hasn't proven himself in the NHL yet. He's got some potential, obviously. They thought highly of him. So yeah, I was a bit surprised, um, and then a little bit angry uh, at the way it was handled by Carolina, and then also a little bit disappointed in Kokinemi. But as things settled, the more I thought about it, the more I read about it, I didn't. I know that Kokinemi was really disappointed that he didn't play the final two games against Tampa. I know that he um, maybe was looking for a change of scenery. He felt slighted by that. Um, and so Carolina saw a little bit of blood in the water and, and went for it. I felt a lot better when I saw that Dvorak was signed. Yeah, he's going to so be a fantastic player in Montreal. Yeah, in some ways, Montreal comes out ahead for next year because Dvorak on paper is better uh, like for what Montreal needs right now like mm-hmm. today Kokinemi has you know his first season he came out hot out of the gate but that was because Max Domi was suspended in the preseason that's how he made the the team so he he didn't finish that first season in his rookie season he, he was burnt out by the end he he was too young and and or just you know not equipped to for a full NHL season the next season was pretty disappointed for Kokinemi I think he played most of it in the AHL, so then, then last season, he had an okay season. He, he's unproven, and so Dvorak comes in with a lot more experience, a better resume, um, like far more points under his belt, and so his line mates will probably feel uh, that that experience is going to be more useful for this year coming up. Long run, we won't know. Maybe maybe Kokinemi does really well in in uh, Carolina with their forward group with a little bit less pressure and a chip on his shoulder. Um, but at $6 million, if he had signed, if they had signed that offer sheet or sorry, if they had signed him in Montreal at $6 million, he would have been booed by the fan base right from the get go. In my opinion, I thought he's burnt. As soon as he signed that, he can't come back. Bergevin's going to let him go. I, I told my friend, he's going to wait for the 11th hour and let the, let it burn out and let him go just to keep the suspense going. But if he stepped onto the ice as a Montreal Canadian, 
with six million dollar contract, they would have booed him, and it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have ended in the end. So it, as soon as he signed it, I knew he was gone. So what you're saying yeah, is that Montreal should have taken to Chuck. Player. They should have taken Kachuk. Looking back on it, uh, but that's that's the problem in Montreal with the their with their centers. They they have like they're desperate for centers. Even last year, you know they they felt strong up the middle, and then now they're they're back to being light. Um, so yeah, like looking back on it, they picked Okinyemi even though he wasn't the highest rated at the time because they were desperate for centers. But they should have taken Kachuk, and they would have been a far better team today. Yeah, well, at least one Canadian team is, uh, you know, reaping the benefits of that. <laughs> yeah, and he's going to make them pay uh, in Montreal for years to come, too, for that, for oh, yeah. uh, overlooking them. So, Chris, we can't thank you enough for joining us to do this segment once again. Now, before we let you go, we were, uh, we're, all, we're asking everybody, since all the, since the NHL is going back to a full 82-game season... All the teams are going back to their original division. How do you see the Montreal Canadiens finishing in the Atlantic Division come April 2022? Last year they did so, like, last year the North was weak, in my opinion. I think it was one of the weaker divisions, if not the weakest division. And, and so it was so tight, other than the Leafs. Um, it, it was a, sort of a coin toss. I thought, actually, Ottawa played Montreal harder than most other teams. And, and I'm going to go on record and say this. Had that been an 82-game season in the North, the way Ottawa was playing, I think Ottawa would have, like, would have made a run down the stretch. I'm not sure how Montreal would have finished, but like Ottawa was looking pretty darn good down the stretch and had a lot of good players. and And I, I thought every time Montreal played Ottawa, I mean, I, I thought Ottawa was going to take them. To be honest, like they, I don't know what the season series was, but I'm pretty sure Ottawa. Like won the season series? Something like that. Yeah, I think it was pretty even. It was almost pretty even. Was it? Yeah, so, I mean, given given that, going into Atlantic, um, the Atlantic is not the North Division. Um, the Atlantic is strong. I, I mean, again, is it the strongest division in hockey with Florida, with um, Tampa and Toronto? Uh, it's going to be a battle for four. Like, and, and I, I have a feeling Toronto's not going to be as good as they think they are. Um, so I don't know what that's going to look like for them, but Florida and Tampa are going to be strong. So is Montreal going to battle it out with Ottawa for that fourth spot? That's probably where I see them. Um, Buffalo's going to be terrible. Buffalo's in that division, right? I'm yep. not losing my yeah, Buffalo's in our division. Hard to go back terrible. to the old division. Yeah, they're going to be terrible. Um, so like, I, I don't know what it's going to look like. Did Montreal get better this year? I don't think they got better over the off season, but I think their experience in the playoffs makes them a better team coming into this regular season. Um, so I, I, I'm guessing fourth, and if they do really well, third, and Toronto would be fourth. But I'm, I'm mm-hmm. predicting Tampa first, Florida second, Toronto third, Montreal fourth. Okay. And oh, and you're thinking Boston falls off? Well, so I do think Boston... I wouldn't, yeah, Boston. I, I don't know. I, I didn't watch them a lot last year, but I don't know if they got much better over the offseason. Now, what, like, I don't, I think they do fall off, um, but I, it's hard to count out Boston, too. Fair enough. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome.
welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I, maybe I'll say this one last thing. Um, it was uh, about that cup run. It was really cool watching my kids get into it, and I and I think that for all the um, hockey fans, if you're if you're listening to a Sens podcast, you must love hockey because if you follow the Sens, it's uh, that's a that's a tough sell. But I'm just I'm throwing shade. But I, I do want to say that watching a playoff, uh, and I'm sure the kids watching um, Ottawa a few years ago in the playoffs, like when you start watching your little kid get into hockey for the first time, and 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 it solidified, like that for me looking back on it was was why I became a Habs fan watching Montreal in the, in the um, late 80s. Uh, it, it was super awesome. So I know that your fans watching right now, um, I'm sure they can reflect back on, on when they became fans of the hockey team and, and especially with the fans with the, their sort of runs back in the day. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it unfold and watching hockey with my kids this year. But I'll uh, looking forward to the first Habs Closing out part one of our 2021-2022 season preview show. Representing your Ottawa Senators of the Atlantic Division is a staff writer for The Athletic and is a returning guest to the show. Please welcome back to the show from our nation's capital of Ottawa, Ontario, our guest, Ian Mendez. Ian, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Guys, it is uh, great to uh, to be back with you, and uh, always uh, always enjoy. I, you were just reminding me; it's been about two years uh, since I've been on your podcast, so I'm certainly overdue to uh, to join you guys. Absolutely, and it's funny because I was thinking about that today because I was trying to remember how long ago it's been since you last were on, and when you were on last, it was mere weeks after the infamous Bush League reporter comments had just come out. Yeah, actually, that's how I measure time too. Now I just measure time based on that comment and so it's been uh two years five months and, and eight days is that what they mean no, by like whiteboard material <laughs> <laughs> a whiteboard was it yeah or like like i wonder do you think reporters do reporters have bulletin board material like like that you know i wonder like do we all have our own and we and i've written down or i i don't have it anywhere i should have you know i don't even have the audio clip of of because uh, eugene was on uh, cfra that day and uh, I don't even think I have the audio clip of that. Like, I that should be my ringtone, right? <laughs> or my my text alert should just be him saying that two uh, two word phrase. Because uh, yeah, it certainly it certainly blew up. And I I don't know. By the way, I don't hold anything against the guy. Like, listen, I I think it's really important that we allow some criticism to come back to us, right? Like, we can't always be in the media dishing out criticism to players and coaches and GMs and owners. And then when they some say something to us, we're like. Oh no, you're mean. Well, guess what? It's a two-way street. So I, I'm all good with it. I, I never had a problem with it. And I, you know, if he came over to me tomorrow and wanted to chat, I, I, I certainly would extend my hand and, uh, and shake his hand and move on for sure. Yeah, because you don't seem like the kind of guy that really would hold a grudge like that, though. See, I've done a good job of maybe tricking people into thinking that I'm this this nice guy, right? Like maybe you guys are. You know, I've done an effective job. No, but for sure. Like, listen, life is way too short to, uh, you know, to hold grudges. And it's not to say you can't get in disagreements with people or have issues. But, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, 
it's probably better to try to to try and uh, put the swords away, so to speak, if you uh, if you get the opportunity. So, Ian, I'm really excited to have you back on the program to talk about the Ottawa Centre today. Now, before we get into that, we've got to do a little bit of an update on what's been going on because when we had you back on the show in 2019 for an interview, we asked a variety of questions ranging from your broadcasting careers to getting hit with a baseball. One thing that we never asked about was your involvement in Jamie McLennan's book, Best Seat in the House. And it's funny we bring that up because later that year, Jamie actually came on the podcast and was on rec speaking very highly about yourself and your involvement with the book. Speaking of which, I have it right there. As you can see, there's your smiling face on the book. Now, now that you've made your return to the show, we got to ask right out of the gate, what was it like working with Jamie McLennan on his book? And you know what's funny? This is how how time flies. I think it was the summer of... Uh, 2011 that I did the majority of the writing for that book. So that's 10 years has gone by since uh, Jamie and I kind of got put together. You know, he was just looking for somebody uh, to write his book. And I had uh, just connected with a literary agent uh, out of Toronto uh, at the time named Brian Wood, who uh, connected me with him. And I had only really known Jamie a little bit, but, you know, got to know him during the course of this book. Boy, what a great, like the Jamie McLennan you see on TSN and you hear on if you listen to Overdrive and, and, and you're a fan of his radio work, the guy that you see there, the, to- the storyteller, the you know really affable, easygoing guy, that's Jamie McLennan and to a T. So I think one of the big challenges for me in, in, in putting that book together was how do I write that book? It's it's basically ghost written, like it's everything is out of his perspective. How do you capture capture that voice and that humor and that that uh, sort of charisma that he has? So I thought that was. Uh, kind of a, a little bit of a challenge, but at the same time, super easy. And we did all of it, uh, in, again, this is 10 years ago. So a lot of it was just done through phone calls, video. Uh, he would even, he would email me this, or not email, he would mail me a, a, a USB stick or like a little, you know, uh, yeah, I think it was a USB stick, okay? And I'd plug it into my laptop, and it would literally be him just looking into his camera, and telling a story for like 90 minutes, uh, a couple of stories, he'd be like, oh, then one time when I was in St. Louis, me and Grant Fuhr did this and that. And he's just, and, you know, because he knew that some, you know, I didn't have a ton of time. So he's like, here, why don't I just send you some stories on a USB stick and then you transcribe them and put them into words. And I was like, okay. And that's kind of how we did some of it too. But a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, storyteller, a great broadcaster and a really good guy. And it's funny because I even reread the book in preparation for doing this. And you're absolutely right. Noodles does come off as a really great storyteller. In regards to some of the books that he told in the story, do you personally have a favorite one that he had in that book? It's funny that you say that. As as you just said that you reread the book, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I I don't even know if I read, like, I think I must have read it, like, when it first came out, like, just to be like, wow, like, I read it. But, you know, because you're involved in the editing process and the proofing process, you kind of know what the finished product's going to be, right? So I, I would say it's been eight or nine years probably since I uh, I read the book. The one that sticks out to me that I always remember is former Islanders coach Al Arbor. Jamie had him for a little bit, I think, early in the nineties. And Al, I, I think Jamie was having a tough time, and Jamie comes off to crease. Al calls a timeout, and Jamie's rattled. He's given up a couple of goals, and basically Al Arbor says to him. If I let I, something, and again, this is just going off the memory, but he says something to Jamie to the effect of, 
you know, if I gave you a bird right now and you flipped your net upside down, could you keep it in the net? Jamie said, what? And Al Arbor's like, if I gave you a live bird right now and you had to keep it inside the net, could you do it? Jamie said, what is this guy talking about? This is the guy that coached the Islanders to four Stanley Cups. He's asking me some riddled his brain teaser. And it was, it was just Al Arbor's way of trying to get Jamie McLennan out of the moment that he had given up a couple of goals and he was losing it. So Al's like, let me give him this brain teaser. He's going to be like, what the bleep are you talking about? And it's going to, and Jamie's like, it, it worked. It reset me. I, he didn't pull me out of the game. And so it, I, I always love those stories. I think that's the, the, the types of stories that uh, people like you and people like me really like, because we're not on the inside, right? Like we, we only see the games on TSN and Sportsnet. And um, you know, even me, I, I get to interact with the players, but you still, there's a wall of kind of secrecy that goes up that we don't get to, 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 to see. So when anytime somebody peeks that curtain open a little bit, you're like, oh my God, give me more content, give me more. So I love that part of the book is that there's all these, the whole thing was riddled with anecdotes like that. And uh, that's, you know, just, that's one that comes off the top of the head for me. Well, and it's funny you mentioned that story because that was one of the first things about the book that really stuck in my mind was the fact that you had this legendary head coach, won four Stanley Cups, coached 1,500 games, and that was one of the things he said to Jamie. But I always remember what he said about Billy Smith in his book when the mascot ran across and he says, oh, if he comes yeah. across the crease, you knock him down. <laughs> I love it. That, that's, and again, there, there is, it's a, it was a different... Even the 1990s was a different time, right? Like, today... You wouldn't hear these types of some of these stories, right? Or you wouldn't, a goalie wouldn't tell uh, a young goalie, hey, you see Sparta Cat on the ice, you take him out. Like that, that wouldn't happen in the year 20, uh, 2021. But those are some great stories from uh, from the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and, and thankfully, because of podcasts like Spit and Chicklets, we now have these kind of stories coming to light. Yeah, and I think people like hearing hockey players just kind of shooting the, you know, like the, the you know, shooting the breeze. And uh, see how I, I saved myself there? I was yep. going to say something else. <laughs> yeah. But I don't even know. Can I swear on this podcast? You can swear all you want. Oh, please. Okay, go for it. The shit. Okay. There wow. They, there we go. We got them. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's great that you get players just in their element, uh, especially if they've had, you know, it, it's, and I have had the, uh, the, the, the privilege of uh, over my time, uh, mostly with retired players, but you get a chance to either play around a round of golf with them or you happen to see them or you go for a drink with them. And you get some great stories, right? And and it's uh, it's the type of thing, like I said, it's a peek behind the curtain that regular uh, guys and girls like uh, like us don't get that opportunity. So when you when you hear the stories, you just you just uh, you know you kind of soak them in. So when we get the Ian Mendez tell-all book, will we be getting those sort of stories from the media side plus some of those golf games? Oh, you're gonna get stories about Brent Wallace. You're gonna get yeah. You know, actually, let me tell you guys a classic. Let me tell you guys, because I love Brent Wallace. In fact, I just did the Brent Wallace and Mark Mathod, as people know, the Wally and Mathod podcast, okay? They just had a golf tournament this week. And I, you know, it was my first time hosting an event in the uh, in the COVID world. There was actually, a re- like, it was an outdoor reception. And so Wally, Brent had asked me, hey, can you, can you MC this for me? And I'm like, yeah, of course, I'd love to. Like I said, I, I think the world of Brent. And I, I, I was going to tell some jokes, and, and I left a couple of anecdotes out, but I'm going to tell you guys one of them because I think it's a great one. Okay? So 2006 playoffs, Ottawa is playing Tampa Bay. First round, Ottawa-Tampa, 
It's the it, by the way, that's like the most forgotten playoff series in Sens history. Nobody talks about it. Ottawa Tampa two thousand six. But and anyway, Brent and I are covering that series, and if I'm not mistaken, Martin Havlat was just coming off an injury and was like just coming in just before the playoffs. And I remember I was waiting in the hallway. Brent and I are waiting for Martin Havlat in a scrum. Martin's going to be brought over. Brent takes his TSN microphone. He's swinging it. It's like, you know, on a wire. And he thinks it's funny. He hits me right in the, you know, (laughs) right in the the Habby Bullens. I'm going to use that as a term because they're playing Tampa Bay. He hits me right in the Habby Bullens, okay? And I go down. I'm actually in pain. I'm like, this guy just hit me with a microphone right in my... In my happy bullets. So I'm down. And Martin Havlat then walks into the scrum, and I'm all like, oh, my God. So anyway, so I'm like, I'm going to get this guy back. I'm going to get Brent Wallace back. So what do I do? I wait till the series shifts to Tampa Bay. We're staying at the same hotel, which I think was the Westin Hotel in Tampa. Okay? And I'm on the same floor as him, and I wait for him to go to bed at night, you know? And then they had these little – and I don't know if – again, I haven't been to a hotel in like two years, so I don't know if they do this anymore. Hotels used to have these little, like these cards you could put on your door if you wanted to order breakfast first thing in the morning. Like you could fill it out, you'd leave it on your on your doorknob. So I took his, I'm like, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to deliver something first thing in the morning. But I didn't want to order like a huge breakfast because now you're wasting money and you're wasting the kitchen staff's time, right? That's not cool. So I'm like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to order a single glass of milk to his room at 6 a.m. So I take the... I take the card, I just click uh, X off one glass of milk, and I put 6 a.m., I put it back in the doorknob. He comes out, Wallace comes out the next day at the morning skate in Tampa. He's sorry. Who the fuck? See, now I know I can swear. Who the fuck? That's milk not delivered to me, and I, he's just sour. And I'm like, I'm trying to keep it up. I'm like, yeah, dude, that was me. That's why you don't. You don't hit me in the happy bullets. So anyway. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's so yeah. amazing. So you'll get you'll get stories like that when the book, uh, which will never probably come out because I don't have that interesting of a of a life. But that that would be the type of story that would come out for sure. Well, either that or the Tom Pricing story. Oh, Tom Pricing, the best. You teased that in an athletic article. I think I commented. I want to hear the Tom Price Tom Pricing story, and I still haven't seen the Tom Pricing story. <laughs> I got to take him. So the year that Tom, this this guy, he's such a good sport. Okay, so Tom Pricing, the year that I, I didn't he only play one year here. Mm-hmm. He did right, oh six, oh seven. So and and he he went gangbusters. Right? He was like plus forty two or whatever he was. And at one point around January, he was leading the entire NHL in plus minus. And I'm like, I bet you nobody knows who Tom Pricing is. Right, like like the average Ottawa fan, like it was it was Heatley and Alfie and Spezza and Fisher and Redden and all those guys. Like you knew those guys, but you didn't know the guy who was leading the league. So I went to him and said, "Would you be game if I took you to a public place and we just stop random people with it?" And I brought a camera. I said, "We stop random people," and I said, "It's going to be called the Tom Pricing Plus Minus Game." For every person that can correctly identify you, you get a plus. For every person who looks at you and doesn't know who you are, you get a minus. And we're going to see what your rating is after a trip to the mall. So we took him to the Rito Center. <laughs> I took Tom Pricing to the Rito Center. And, guys, he was such a good sport. You know what he brought with him? 
he brought his senator's helmet and he even brought it and put it on at one point and he was modeling he's like come on you don't know who i am and nobody knew i think he ended up like a minus 50 and nobody knew and he was such a good sport about it uh i can't stress what a good sport about it uh he was i think that people were like are you joe corvo like (laughs) Like, people didn't know uh, who he was. But, boy, was he a good sport. It's one of my favorite. Like, I, I love doing TV. TV was a lot of fun. Uh, and that was probably at the top of my list of, of fun TV stories I ever did around the Senators. Oh, that's – literally, we could literally just sit here and get you to tell anecdotes like that all day. But we got to move along here <laughs> and talk about your new position with The Athletic. Now, when you were back on the show – when you were on the show back in 2019, you were still working for TSN 1200 as a radio show host. In January of 2021, you announced on Twitter that you were departing TSN to join The Athletic, replacing Haley Sullivan, who was covering the Sens, now she's covering the Calgary Flames. How did the opportunity come up to join The Athletic? Well, I just pushed Haley out. I said, get out of here, kid. We don't need you. Uh, No, you know what? It was uh, just, you know, a lot of, uh, when you change jobs, and it doesn't matter what your, your career path is, a lot of things have to line up for you. There's a lot of circumstances beyond your control that you didn't know. And I didn't know that Haley was kind of thinking about maybe taking a step away and, and maybe going to another market. And I think the thing about Haley is I think she loved the Ottawa Senators fan base, like loved it. Like she still tells me, she's like how much she loves the Ottawa fan base. So I think that part of it was tougher, but I don't think she necessarily had a great time being here. And I, anyway, and so I think she was ready to, to, to say, you know what, I, I could I could I could be you know convinced to move, and so the athletic had kind of reached out to me and asked if I had uh, you know I had kind of expressed some interest to them uh, about maybe doing some freelance work for them, and, and we had kind of gone back and forth on a couple of things, and then they said, listen, would you be interested in maybe doing this full time with us? And I'm like, yeah, hundred percent. So um, you know they talked about it, and I think Haley kind of could have gone in a, in a myriad of directions and I was even open to I'll be honest with you the ideal scenario would have been to have her stay and and we could have uh, you know been a, a you know two two headed monster so to speak because boy she is so talented she is and you know she is you know whatever 17 years younger than me whatever she is 18 years younger and she's so talented and I would have loved the opportunity to uh, to work with her on a, on a print standpoint because I think we have some different strengths where I think I can be more of the, you know, opinion columnist uh, analyst, and she could, she can also have opinion, but she's a much better feature writer, I think. So, you know, I think it would have been a great, uh, a great uh, tandem there. But you know, I just, I, I just had to do it because I think in in the back of my mind, I thought I did TV, I did radio, and I loved it. And I said, if I didn't take this opportunity with the athletic, if I let it go and they gave that job to somebody else, that person's not going to give up. The, 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 I got one shot, right? So I took the shot. Uh, it's been nine months. It's been, the, it's been the best, and I love it. And, uh, you know, being a writer is a huge challenge, um, but I, it's something that I think I probably needed at this, uh, this stage of my, uh, my career. I'm an old man, guys. I'm 44. So you get to that <laughs> point. One day you guys will get to 44, and you'll be like, oh, I know what he was talking about. Like, everything is sore. Even though I'm the same age as Tom Brady, that guy that guy doesn't seem to be sore like I am. Do you drink enough water? Probably not. I do have some. <laughs> can, I, can I do a product placement here? Oh, yeah. Sure. Am I allowed? 
Okay, because you guys don't have out west, you don't have farm boy. Okay? Not that I know of. Right. Farm boy is money. Best grocery store in Ottawa. I, 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 they don't, I'm not even, this is not a paid spot. This isn't one of those uh, things. But I, they have these sparkling waters. So I, I'm trying to drink more. I got a mango, grapefruit, farm boy, sparkling water here. So I'm trying. Okay. I'm trying to stay hydrated like Tom Brady. Oh, yeah. Solid. Yeah. And I know that you brought up Haley Selvin and the fact that she loved the Ottawa Senator fan base. I always felt in the very short time that she was covering the Sens that the fans open open arm just loved her back. And I think that was really came with a lot of the beat writers, a lot of people who cover the team, like yourself or Ian Mendit, like yourself or Brett Wallace or some of the people who cover this team. And I feel Haley was the same way, but... You could definitely tell the fans were really disappointed to see Haley leaving, and it's like, okay, well, who are they going to get to replace Haley with the Athletic? And then it's like, the Athletic has hired Ian Mendes, and we're like, yes, okay, that's 100%. We're on dip. We're down with that. Yeah, and it, it was tough, I think, because there was a little window where Haley de- announced her departure, and then people were like, who's coming in? And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, there's a little bit of mystery to it. Obviously, we both knew. Uh, what was going to happen. And I think, you know, the one thing with Haley, and I think this is what I try and do, and this is what I think I think fans usually appreciate, like, Haley's really good at this, is just talk to fans like they're on your level. Because they are. Like, there, there's no, you know, uh, we're up here and you're down here. We're all the same. And I think one of the things I've noticed, uh, especially in, since the rise of, you know, podcasts like yours, there are fans that know more about the Ottawa Senators than I do. And I say that all the time. I am not the smartest person about the Ottawa Senators. I don't know the most. I just happen to have access to the team. Uh, I don't know. That quiz you put out the other day yeah, that was, was that was me. That was mean. You know what? That was, that was mean-spirited. You know what's crazy about that? We had more than 1,000 people took the quiz. The highest mark was 11 out of 20. And I think only two or three people got that. The majority of people, the average or the median score was four and a half. Out of 20. But that was just me. Yeah, that was me just trying to show people that maybe I am the smartest guy, but I'm not. I, I myself would have gotten 4 out of 20 if somebody had given me that quiz without me doing the research for it. But, but yeah, I think it's really important that if you're a media member, don't act like you're this, like, you know, that I have this sacred spot and I'm better than... We're not better than you. We are you. And if we're not working for you, then what are we doing, right? So I, uh, I, I kind of... Always appreciated that about Haley, and I think that's what I think resonated with the fan base. They're like, "Oh wow, here's this really engaging young reporter that doesn't talk down to us, that drops the Elmo on fire gif, that has some fun. Like this should be fun. This doesn't have to be this big, uh, you know, uh, you know, tense thing." And that's sometimes, unfortunately, that's what's happened around uh, uh, this team the last few years. But I thought she was just an absolute breath of uh, fresh air. So, Ian, let's talk about the Ottawa Senators. So, the 2021 COVID-shortened season, the Ottawa Senators were a team that could best best be described as night and day. They went from a team at the beginning of the year who couldn't keep the puck out of the net to save their life to a team that finished the season as the hottest team in the NHL. Despite another losing season, fans had a lot to be proud of. You had Drake Batherson's breakout season, Josh Norris unexpectedly becomes a number one center and a dark horse for Rookie of the Year. Tim Stutzla looking like an absolute superstar in the making. Eric Branstrom really stepping up in the injury absence of Thomas Shabbat late in the season. This offseason, though, the Senators were pretty quiet overall, despite the hirings of Pierre Maguire and trading of Giddy Danoff for Nick Holden being the main stories. 
In regards to last season, what was your thoughts on the Sens' year? And what kind of expectations should fans have as we enter this new season? Well, I think the term you used was really fitting, right? It was night and day. There was two tails to the season. There was the first, you know, whatever, six, seven weeks. And then there's the final six or seven weeks. And in between, there was a little bit of kind of a mixed bag. But, um, you know, which version of the Ottawa Senators are we going to see? I, I'd love it if it was the last six weeks of, of the season. That was really fun. And I think what was really important was the guys that were driving the bus the last six weeks of the year. It was Norris, it was Batherson, it was Kachuk, it was Stutzla, it was Shabbat, Connor Brown. It, it was the core of the team, right? It wasn't like this weird duct-taped version of a bunch of veteran guys that you know aren't going to be there 18 months from now. That wasn't it, right? Like, they used the young guys. So there's a lot of – there should be. Like, Ottawa fans should be optimistic. Like, don't – like, I understand that there's going to be uh, analytics and numbers and things that tell you they're not going to be a playoff team – like, but what if we just had some optimism and then let the first 15 or 20 games play itself out? Now, I'm willing to say that, yeah, I don't think they're a playoff. Like, if you're asking me right now, Ian, you've got your house right there. Your mortgage is on the line, and it's the middle of September. As they're currently constructed, Do you are you confident enough to bet your house that Ottawa's a playoff team? My answer would be no. No, they're, they're not. And And part of that is a function of, you're, in my opinion, and I know, and I disagree with this all the time with Pierre Dorian, and I think, uh, and I think to some extent with DJ Smith, but for sure with Pierre Dorian. Him and I go back and forth on this. I think they had a better chance of making the playoffs in the All Canadian Division. He thinks that the All Canadian Division was harder than the regular division, and I'm like, I just agree to disagree, and and I, I understand what he's saying, but I think when you go to this old Atlantic Division. I, tell me if you guys are if I'm wrong, okay? okay? I think Tampa's a playoff lock. I think Toronto with you know insert playoff joke here, but they're a regular season playoff lock, okay? I think Florida is pretty darn good, but I'm 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 not going to say they're a playoff lock, but I'm going to say that they have all the makings of being a championship caliber team. And then you got Boston that hasn't missed the playoffs essentially in a decade. To me, until you have tangible proof that they're not a playoff team. You almost need to say they're a playoff team. So there's four teams that I feel comfortable putting ahead of Ottawa this year. Okay, and you could maybe talk me into Boston without without Dave Krejci and without Tuka Rask, and that they could regress. Okay, but until we see it, I'm not willing to call it. So now you're down to one potential playoff spot available because if you think those four teams are playoff teams and one would be a wild card team, there's one wild card spot left. And, oh, yeah, there's the Metro division. And it's pretty stacked, right? That's that's Carolina's a playoff team. And I think Pittsburgh and Washington have proven, like Boston, that they're a playoff team until they're not. And Philly, it's like every year they make the playoffs, then they don't, then they do, then they don't. Well, they're due to make the playoffs this year. And, oh, yeah, Barry Trotz's Islanders. And the Rangers and the Devils look so, – like, all of a sudden, it's a big game of musical chairs – and I'm not sure that there's a seat for Ottawa, but I want Ottawa fans to know that starting the season, you're no longer with Columbus and Buffalo and Detroit, and you should feel good about that. You're now in that grouping, I think, with Philadelphia, with New Jersey, with the Rangers, and I know I'm going to tick off Habs fans because I'm going to put them there. They're going to be like, well, we went to the Cup. Well, I don't care. I think you're a playoff bubble team. 
And these are playoff bubble. Ottawa is a playoff bubble team. And that's you should be happy about that given the the four year journey we've all been on. Like let's let's at least go in this is the first time I think we've gone into a season since 2017-2018 where you can legitimately talk me into they could be a playoff team. And I haven't felt that way in four years. Yeah, it's definitely a feeling that a lot of fans have. Like myself, like I feel the same way. I just Wait. feel that for myself, athlete that the oh, Atlantic oh. division is the toughest division, like the three teams you mentioned. I do think Boston's going to take a big step back. I don't think Montreal's going to be the playoffs, but I think if the Senators of the last six weeks of last season is how we start this year and continue on that trend, then you never know, right? Like we could be pushing for a wild card spot. Can I actually roll the tape back a second? Sure. Ian said that going into the 2017-2018 season, he wasn't convinced that the Ottawa Senators were a playoff team. Did I hear that right? No, no. I said I said that was the last time oh, that, was the last that I time. thought okay. that they could have been. You know, like in, in September of 2017, I'm like, this team just went to the, the third round of the playoffs. I'm like, yeah, they're probably a playoff team, right? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. we went into training camp in 2017 thinking that this – now, the how the next seven months played out, we were like, whoa, what the heck is this? And then after that, it – it took. This is the first time in four years that I have felt okay. like they could be a playoff team. Cool, cool. Sorry, just confirm, making sure I heard right. Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest storylines heading into this season regarding the Senators is RFA Brady Tkachuk. Now, since being drafted in 2018, Brady has been the absolute heart and soul of the Senators and has been the overwhelming favorite from fans to become the captain of this team. With his entry-level contract expired, the Senators have been trying to work on a new contract with Brady, and they hope to have him sign before training camp. In regards to a new deal, do you think that a deal is going to get done, and do you feel it's either going to be a bridge or a long-term extension? You know, I, if you go back and look at all of my writing in The Athletic from May till now, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. He's going to get signed. My suspicion is it's going to be a bridge deal. My suspicion, I said, uh, if you, I think way back when I got asked, pick a date, pick it. And I think I said like September 18th, he'll sign for three years at 7.7 per. And it, again, I don't, I, again, who knows? But I want Ottawa fans to think of a couple of things here. Look, at as much as you would want him to sign the eight-year deal, the eight-year deal is no guarantee that he's here for eight years. Look, if Brady Kachuk signs for eight years, and two and a half years into it, this thing is an unmitigated tire fire. Guess who's going to ask out? It's going to be Brady Kachuk. So the idea that just because he's locked up for eight years means he's here for eight years, I, I don't think so. I think even if he signed for eight years or three years, this is about a kind of a two- to three-year plan for this team right now. Like, I think two years from now, they had better be a playoff team, and three years from now, they had darn well better be a Stanley Cup contender. And... And if Brady Kachuk wants to say, you showed me by then, and I'll be willing to sign, I'm okay with that. I think Ottawa fans should be okay with that, too, because let's also fast-forward this. Let's say Brady Kachuk signs for eight years. And, folks, what if it goes off the rails? And what if they're not a good team for two Maybe Maybe trading Brady Kachuk or moving on from him is the best course of action. Like We don't know what the future holds, right? So all I'm saying is I think – Bridge deal makes the most sense. I don't think people should panic. I do think that there's a legitimate pressure point for the start of training camp. I do think that they would both negotiate in good faith. 
I don't think that there's been, I think they've done a very good job of keeping the stuff fairly airtight, which is why anytime anybody puts out even a morsel of information, people are rabid about it. But I ask everyone to just take a big, deep breath, understand, I, I believe on opening night, a month from now, he's going to be in the lineup against the Maple Leafs, and whether that's on a three-year deal or something longer, I don't know, but I'm pretty confident he'll be there opening night, and that's all you should really care about. Well, do you feel that the extensions for Drake Batherson and Philip Gustafson have really sort of eased the anxiety fans have with Brady's contract? Because there's always been the rumor that, you know, the team doesn't want to spend money. And we saw this in the past when it came to Carlson or Mark Stone or whoever you want to do. And the fans, you know, if you look in the past, fans kind of feel like this is another reason, even though Brady seems like he loves being in Ottawa. Well, the Batherson contract's fantastic. Fantastic. Like, it's super team friendly. I think if he hits his ceiling, it's super team friendly. And if he doesn't hit his ceiling, it's not. It's not even a five million. So it shouldn't be this like white elephant on the payroll. And that's the other thing too. Like I see Ottawa fans complain. Matt Murray makes too much, or Nikita Zaitsev makes too much, or Colin White makes too much. Gang, this is not a cap team. They. How, like, how do we care about now? Three years from now, maybe that's when we can start complaining about guys making too much. But right now, they're the lowest spending team in the league. So until they become a cap team with cap issues, let's back off on talking about who's overpaid and who's not pulling their weight, like financially, because I don't think that's really a huge factor. But I do think the Batherson signing is huge because it shows here's a young man in the prime of his career who could have gone the bridge route and said, I just want to get till I'm 27 and I'm out of here. And he didn't. He said, I'm going to do six years and I'm going to do basically $30 million. And I think it's a, it's a great deal for him. It's a great deal for the team. And it shows you with Shabbat, with Colin White, that there are young people willing to commit to this rebuild. And, and I think really importantly, commit to this city. And it's funny because I've always said on the show that I was not always a believer of Drake Batherson. Until this past season when my opinion of him changed for the positive when he broke out as the team's top-line right-winger. And a new contract, it really gave fans just such a renewed optimism. As as you said, it proves that the players do want to stay here or stay in Ottawa long-term. And the team is willing to pony up that money. So, given that you already just talked about Drake Batherson, let's talk about Philip Gustafson's extension. And one of the big issues last year for the team really was the lackluster play of the goaltenders. However... One guy who really had stood out was Philip Gustafson, who went 5-1-2 with a 2.16 goals against and a save percentage of 9.33. So coming into the season, like Batterson, Gustafson was an RFA looking for an extension, which he received a two-year, $1.575 million contract extension, which is noted as he's now making less money than his entry-level contract. In regards to his play last season, like what was your thoughts on how he played and... Were you actually surprised that he took a pay cut on this new deal? Yeah, I, I thought it was a super friendly deal, but I think maybe he takes a pay cut in exchange for one-way money in year two, right? Like, I think his mentality is, I just want one-way money in year two because it's going to be darn near impossible for you to keep me in the American Hockey League. If you're paying me NHL money, you're going to probably keep me in the NHL. So I think that's his, his camp's rationale for, yeah, we'll take a little less, but give us the guaranteed uh, one-way money in year two. I think it's really fascinating when you go back and look at, uh, at different different points in time last season, which goalie the Senators would have protected. 
in the Seattle expansion draft? I think you go back to January, February, your, your answer would have been Matt Murray, right? Two-time Stanley Cup winner in his prime, locked into a, a you know long-term deal. Well, you wouldn't want to lose Matt Murray for nothing, so you'd protect Matt Murray. Then Matt Murray struggles, and Joey Decord plays well. You're like, wow, this Joey Decord kid's super athletic, and you know he's on a reasonable contract, and he's also got one-way money coming up down the road. And boy, what a what a breath of fresh air, what a dynamic person. Yeah, they're they're, they're gonna they're gonna protect uh, Joey Decord. Yeah, Decord gets hurt, and a few weeks go by, and Phil Gustafson comes in out of nowhere. You're like, damn, the 9.33 save percentage and, and the the metrics you laid out, it suddenly shifted to him. And I think if I think what's really fascinating is if Joey Decord doesn't get hurt in that game uh, in, in March, I think he's the guy that gets protected. And I think Gustafson's exposed, and then who knows if he gets taken, though, right? Like Because he maybe never plays, and Seattle's like, I don't know what this guy is, and we'll, we'll take somebody else from Ottawa, right? So it's amazing how the kind of trajectory of different people's careers changed the night... Uh, uh, Joey Decord hurt his ankle there against Vancouver. So I think Gustafson was terrific. It wouldn't shock me if he had some games in the NHL this year, either due to injury for Anton Forsberg or Matt Murray, or maybe poor play. I think one thing is, I mean, if DJ Smith had a redo, I think he would have gone to different goalies and, and ridden a hot hand earlier last year. I don't think he'll do that again. I think this time around, he doesn't care if it's Forsberg Murray, Gustafson, whoever, Matt Sogard, if you're hot and you're in the net for Ottawa, you're going to be the goalie. And I think it, that's what Gustafson proved at the uh, at the end of last year. Now, sticking with the goalies, one guy who struggled big time was Matt Murray, who had a goals against of 3.38 and a 8.93 save percentage. Well... A part of this can be put on the play of the defense early on. Murray himself didn't do himself any favors in goal, which didn't help matters when, as you said, Philip Gustafson emerged as a legit number one. A bounce back season for Murray isn't totally out of the cards for the Senators, but if he does, I would, I see him being on very thin ice despite being under contract until 2024. Heading into the season, what does Matt Murray need to do in order to have a bounce back season? If you guys look at, and I don't have his numbers in front of me, you look at his last five starts last year. His save percentage was like 930, 940. His goals against was under two. He won three of the games. And then he got hurt again. Look, like when I talk to people in Pittsburgh, uh, and I talk to a lot of people in Pittsburgh, including their old general manager, Jim Rutherford, a lot of media people there, a lot of people, they would say, Boy, Matt Murray, when he's going, he's good. And you think when he's on his game, you're thinking this guy's not going to let a goal in, like. But when he's leaky, it starts to it starts to get away from him. And the thing about Matt Murray, the the two things that I think plagued him last year were the two things that plagued him in his in his final eighteen months in Pittsburgh, which was injuries and inconsistency. And the first thing is, can he stay healthy? Because if he can, I think that might help solve the second problem, which is the inconsistency. So. I think he'll be your opening night starter. I think there'll be some some rope for him early in the year for him to find his game. But it's not going to be six weeks. It's not going to be eight weeks. It's going to be, you better be ready to go. But I think he's got the mental fortitude. I think he's a really likable guy, too. Like, Matt, Matt's a really likable guy. And I think and the fan base wants to see him do well. I don't think there's any, uh, you know, uh, animosity from the fan base. But 
with Forsberg and Gustafsson sitting waiting in the wings, there's not going to be a lot of room for him to kind of find his game. But I, I think he can do it. I think we saw, if we didn't see those five games at the end of the year last year with a new goalie coach, I'd be a little bit more pessimistic. But it's there. Like, you can see it. It's just Kenny stringing it together with consistency and uh, staying injury-free. Do you think preseason, having a preseason this year will make a world difference for guys like Matt Murray or new guys coming onto the team like Matt Holden, sorry, Nick Holden? Yeah, 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 I think so. And I think uh, you got to remember, Ottawa, not only did they not have a preseason, they were one of the teams that didn't have the return-to-play bubble in the summer of 2020, right? So they, they and the three California teams, and I think it was Jersey, Buffalo, Detroit, there were seven teams that, that didn't do the return-to-play, and they should have had a little bit of extra training camp and the chance to – I always said it would have been great if you could have done a, a preseason tournament, you get the three California teams together to play, and then you get Ottawa, Detroit, Buffalo, and Jersey. I, but there was COVID restrictions. But just get them playing some games. I do think it'll help. I do think that uh, Matt Murray needs some, some, some kind of game action to, to get going, and I think it'll help a bunch of guys um, – that, that are new to the system. Delzato would be one who I think is going to play a top four role here. Um, you know, I still think there's probably another move to be made. So, yeah, I think I think having some exhibition games is going to be a good thing for this team. Uh, just a side question here because you brought up the Pittsburgh media. Have you ever had any run-ins with Mark Madden? You know, I haven't, but he's like – he's super opinionated and super um, – What's the word? Like he's the classic talk show host, right? Like he's 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 in your face. He's unapologetic, and he's he's Pittsburgh. Like he is a Pittsburgh guy through and through. Oh yeah, he's a total yinzer. Like there's no yeah. question about that. Yeah. yeah. Also, you said that you expect one more move to, move to be made. In what sense do you think that's going to happen? Well, I think when you look at this team, I th- I think you guys would 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 agree. Like they need another forward. I'm sorry, they need another forward. I love Igor Sokolov, and I love his story, but I don't want to see this kid rush. Like, this guy's such a fun guy. Just look at the way that they brought Batherson along. Look at the way that they brought Norris along. Sokolov could probably use another few months in the AHL. So you start to look at the right-wing position, you're like, okay, Drake Batherson's one, Connor Brown's two. Well, who's three? Is it Austin Watson? Because I think he slots in perfectly as four. Who's the third-line right-winger? Is it Colin White? Maybe, but uh, again, they're, they're, something's missing there. Like, mm-hmm. I'd be shocked if we got to opening night on October the 14th and this is their group of forwards. I'd be shocked. I think there's going to be a, a trade, and whether you could have, a, a month ago I would have thought it was a center. I'm starting to think it might be a right winger, but they just need another forward. Could Logan Brown or Parker Kelly hop in? I think Parker Kelly's got a great chance to play. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, here's a, a free tease of a story I got coming maybe hopefully next week. Great conversation with Parker Kelly a few weeks ago. Great conversation with his mom. Great conversation with his uh, junior hockey coach, uh, Mark Habscheid. So I think they love Parker Kelly. I think he just exudes kind of bottom six, fourth line, here we go, relentless motor type of energy. So I could see Parker Kelly, and he's told me he's, he's okay playing right wing too. But now, if you look at teams' third lines, you need someone who can be a bit of a finisher too, right? Like on your third line. So I don't know. I, I don't. I just think that there's there's an opportunity for them to make one more move here. Yeah. 
do you think maybe a pickup of saying a Ryan Donato could have been a perfect situation for Ottawa in that case? Yeah, I saw. I mean, I saw the Kraken picking him up, and I'm like, man, I, I know that. Uh, I think everyone has uh, said that uh, Pierre Maguire uh, was always a big fan of Ryan Donato, especially when he was doing NBC games, and if it was a Sharks game, he would go out of his way to you know kind of uh, you know compliment Ryan Donato. So I thought, yeah, maybe that was a guy. Uh, that would have been a good fit, right? Like that would have been a, a guy that could play a little center, play a little wing, and. Uh, We'll see. I mean, Pierre Dorian talked about the idea of Sokolov playing right wing, talked about Timmy Stutzler moving to right wing, talked about Nick Paul moving to right wing. Like, they got they got some options internally that maybe they don't have to make a move, but I, I, I still think they will. One one little question. Uh, with Pierre Maguire on the on the team in a managerial role, every time we pick up a player, are you gunning for a new edition of Maguire's Monsters? Oh, double Dion. Don't you wish he had... Uh, uh, Dion Phaneuf was still here with Pierre Maguire. Oh, that would have been fantastic. It honestly yeah, would have. Would have written themselves. <laughs> you know, but Pierre is one of the most high energy people I've ever been around. Uh, you know, I've known him a long time, and um, you know, he's he's just even when he's been on the radio here, I think it's good for the organization to have a you know a new voice, different voice. Uh, I, I think Pierre Dorian has been through a really tough four years and uh, had to be. Uh, the front man for some pretty tough news conferences and, 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 and things that, have, uh, you know, he's had to answer to. Um, and, and maybe it's good to have a different voice, right? And, and Pierre is, uh, McGuire, is a really knowledgeable guy with a ton of broadcasting experience and I think can deliver smooth messages. So it's been, uh, it's been nice to hear him uh, kind of do some, some media hits. So heading into last season, one of the big storylines was the arrival and debut of third overall pick, Tim Stutzla, who solidified his spot in the top six, scoring 29 points in 53 games following a fantastic World Juniors in Edmonton. Coming into this season, expectations are going to be through the roof for him as he tries to build on his rookie season playing alongside Shane Pinto and Connor Brown. For yourself, what kind of expectations are you putting on Stutzla this season? You know, if you go and prorate what Tim Stutzler did in his rookie year, his numbers, if I'm not mistaken, guys, would have come out to similar numbers as Martin Havlat in his rookie year. And I think Marty was 19 goals, something like that. So I think a realistic expectation for Tim Stutzler is somewhere between 20 and 25 goals. I think if you start to ratchet up the expectations and say he's he's got to get to 30 it's hard to get to 30 you know i think what and i and i've taken some heat for this and i, I and i don't mean this uh, people don't see this as a compliment but it's a huge compliment i think tim stutzler could be nick ehlers nikolai ehlers is a fantastic hockey player nikolai ehlers is a lock it in 25 goal guy he is a legitimate top six impact forward and everyone I say that to, they're like, no, no, Stutz is going to be better. I'm like, okay, maybe he will be. But let's set the bar at Nikolai Ehlers. Because if, if he turns into Nick Ehlers, that's a hell of a hockey player. And that's a hell of a piece to build around, especially when you add Kachuk and Batherson and Norris and Pinto and all of like, like So I think I want to see another season out of him. He, the, the issue I had with, with, with Tim, and I'm sure the, 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 the staff had it too, um, First 10 games of the year, I think it was four goals. Last 10 games of the year, I think it was five goals. In between, he had three goals in 33 games. Something like that. That's a long stretch for anybody to go three and 33. So 
eliminate some of the peaks and valleys, try and be a little bit more consistent, and let's use 25 goals as a realistic uh, plateau for him. I think if he gets to that, shows a little bit more consistency, then next year we can talk about Tim Stutzel being a 30-goal guy. But until then, I think we should uh, be a little bit more reserved in our expectations for him. But I think uh, he, he's a wonderful talent and engaging uh, electric young, magnetic young man, and he's exactly what this fan base needs. And Nikolai Ehlers is not a bad player to compare Tim Stutzel to, but I know that there's been some people on Twitter, and I want to get your take on this, that there's some people who think if Tim Stutzel can reach his potential, Ottawa could see Marion Hossa 2.0. That's a tough one because Marion Hossa is, a, a, a Hall of Famer, and B, was one of the best 200-foot players to play in the 21st century, you know? So... I think, like, for Tim Stutzla to do that, he would have to become a complete player. And that's what Haas did, right? Haas will tell you that, that Jacques Martin played for him really helped create some of the fundamentals that he then took to, uh, I don't know, well, I have no idea if he took him to Atlanta because no one watched him in Atlanta. But he certainly took him to Pittsburgh, Detroit, and uh, Chicago. And that's a, that's a lofty bar. You're talking about a 500-goal, 1,000-point, three-time Stanley Cup winner, lock it in Hall of Famer who played a 200-foot game. I haven't seen the 200-foot game yet for Tim Stutzla, right? Like, I wouldn't think of him as, ah, you know what, I can see that guy killing penalties sometimes because that's what Marion Hossa did uh, at times too, right? So I think that's a little, again, but I'm not willing to say it's not going to happen. Let's just, let's let the kid, let's not drown the kid in expectations and then if he turns into Nick Ehlers but you thought he was going to be Marion Hossa, you're going to be disappointed. So that's why I'm saying just lower the expectations enjoy him for what he is and let's have some fun watching this guy grow this past offseason was a pretty quiet one for the senators as i mentioned off the top outside of the minor pickups of michael dozato and the hiring of pierre mcguire the only real news regarding the team was the trade with vegas acquiring nick holden for evgeny dadanoff holden last season in vegas merely was a taxi squad player for the team and him coming to ottawa is the team's way of trying to shore up the back end Overall, what was your thoughts on the news that Nick Holden had been traded to the Senators? Listen, Holden, to me, has a little bit of a flexibility factor. He can play the right side. He can play the left side. Um, I think he's the type of guy that DJ Smith will like because he can he can play a little bit of a physical game. I don't think you're going to see Holden and Josh Brown in the lineup at the same time. If I had to guess, you'll see some combination of Mete Brandstrom and some combination of Holden Brown, but not those two guys together. Like, I, I don't know, at, at least to start the season, right? But one thing we've learned, injuries happen, uh, poor performance occurs. So I think Holden would likely be your 6-7 guy. I think Mete is your 6 guy. Um, and again, Brown is probably in that 6-7 spot. There's going to be a lot of moving parts, I think, on that, uh, on that bottom pairing. Do you think that Vegas would have made this trade if, say, Marc-Andre Fleury was still in the books? It's a great question, right? Because I, especially when they, they got rid of Fleury, everyone thought, well, they're going to go out and get Jack Eichel. Or they're going to go out and get a centerman. And they took the, the money from Fleury and essentially spent it on uh, Evgeny Dodnov. But they're a cap team. They're right up against the cap. So I would have to say no. I would have to say if Fleury was still in the picture, I'm not sure how they uh, engineer that deal for uh, Evgeny Dodnov. Okay. Uh, just sticking with the defense for a second... After Ottawa lost Thomas Shabbat to injury near the near the end of last season, one guy that really stepped up his game, hands down, 
was Eric Brandstrom. And Brandstrom last season, and I said this on the show, was a guy who really, in my personal opinion, got the short end of the stick with DJ Smith. Despite the play of Ottawa's other defensive pickups, it just seemed like Brandstrom was the guy who was always stapled to the bench time and time again for just the littlest of mistakes. And yet, say, <coughs> and Eric Goodbranson could basically fumble the puck or fall on his ass, and he's still out there. And coming into the season, fans really had him slotted as a top four defenseman, even playing on the right side with Thomas Shabbat. However, it's been very questionable whether the Senators will use him as one. Now, regarding Branstrom, what do you feel would be the best course of action to use him this season? Well, I don't want to see Eric Branstrom watching games from a press box. I don't. I, this, this, he's too young of a guy to, to be sitting there. And he's still only 22. We sometimes forget that. Uh, he hasn't played a ton of NHL games. I think your best course of action is to play him. And I I would have played him right off the hop. Like, he would be in my opening night lineup, me personally, because I I think he played well the last half dozen games of the year when Shabbat got hurt for the final four or five games. I thought he was really good. Um, I would see what the kid has. I, I, I Do I think he can defend super well and tough? No, but... Uh, that's not a, an issue that's only unique to him. There's other guys on this team that, that can sometimes struggle in that capacity. So if I had to guess, though, because of the waivers game, he's going to start the season in Belleville because you would have to put most other guys through waivers to, to get them down. And Bransom, you don't have to. He's still waiver exempt. So I think that's probably what's going to happen unless he comes into training camp and he blows the doors off the place and says, that's my job. And maybe he could. He would have to outplay certainly Victor Mete to get into that spot. And if he does it, maybe he is. And maybe they put Mete on waivers, and who knows. But I, I think he can't be sitting around as the seventh guy collecting dust. Do you think that Ottawa having a crowded back end and the Senators using him more as a third-pairing defenseman is why when you hear all these trade rumors come out, that Branstrom name is always attached to it? Well, I think it's only natural to... When you hear trade rumors, you think of, well, who's not fitting in right now and who's got – it's Eric Branson, right? So I don't know. Like, it, it'd be tough to, to see him – look, the one thing on Branson is the kid never asked for the expectations. He never asked to be traded for Mark Stone, and he certainly didn't ask to be, uh, you know, get the uh, proudest day of the general manager uh, put on his shoulders. He, he is, he's dealt with a lot in this marketplace for a guy who's barely played. So I think every time he steps in the lineup, there's expectations and pressure on him. I bet you if you gave him some truth serum, he'd probably say a change of scenery is good for me. Not a, just, hey, I'd like to go somewhere where not everyone's not looking at me as the replacement for Mark Stone. And it's a tough, it's a tough uh, uh, pair of skates to fill. And unfortunately, that's uh, kind of the, the narrative around Brandstrom, which is probably unfair. It is unfair. And definitely... For myself, Eric Branstrom's a guy that I really want him to succeed. Not not just because that's who we got back from Mark Stone, but when you see the kid play, you can tell the talent's there. The hockey smarts is there. He's got everything. He's got all the intangibles to be a top-four defenseman for the Senators. It just doesn't seem like the team is using him correctly in order to get to him to that point. Yeah, and I think what was disappointing, like if Victor Mete, they don't claim Mete off waivers, he's probably... Locked in that spot, but Mete looked really good, didn't he? Mete looked really good, and I think then when they when they acquired Delzato, people were like, "What? What's going on here?" Right? And so I'm curious to see how this plays out because they got a crowded 
this is the only time right now there somewhere Guy Boucher is like this is the perfect formula to dress seven defenders. Right? <laughs> like this is it. This is the opportunity to dress seven guys. Well, it's like I was definitely someone who uh, I don't get Del Zotto signing at all. Like the back end's crowded. Del Zotto doesn't really fit even on a team like Anaheim and there's even some character questions given he's getting blasted on Twitter by porn stars. Like, do you know what the senators were going for with Del Zotto? Yeah, I, I'll tell you what. And, you know, and, and the thing about Mike Del Zotto is there's this one side of Del Zotto that people see, which is when he broke into the league, I think he was a very arrogant, cocky kind of offensive defenseman. And you talked about the, the stuff on social media. Okay. And now there's the Mike Del Zotto from today. And I'll tell you, John Tortorella endorses Michael Delzato, and it brought him into Columbus last year. So think about that. If John Tortorella, who is the most no-nonsense, blue-collar, work ethic guy, is going to bring Mike Delzato into Columbus, and, and, and when I talked to Michael this summer, the one thing he told me is, I learned so much from John Tortorella. And when I went through it in New York, Torts taught me how to play defense, taught me how to block shots. Taught... Michael Delzato has had seasons, guys, where he's been in the top five in the league in block shots and in hits. He's not the Michael Delzato that we remember for eight, nine years ago that was this loosey-goosey guy. He does have a little bit more of a defensive side. So this is what they needed, right? I think people would have – maybe some people wanted Ryan Graves and he would have been a better stabilizing guy. But that's the mindset. That's the rationale. You're asking me what's the rationale for Delzato? It's to stabilize the second pairing and stabilize the defensive game in their own zone. We'll see if it if it plays itself out or if they end up uh, once again having a second pairing that gets uh, kind of caved in. So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make on this segment before we close it out? No, I think this has been uh, super enlightening. It has been. Ian, we can't thank you enough once again for taking time out of your schedule to join us. Now, before we let you go... First of all, where can the people find you on social media and where can they find your articles with The Athletic? The Athletic, unfortunately, uh, for, for people, it's a, it is a paywall site, so you do have to pay a monthly subscription to, uh, to read our content, but I promise you it's worth it. And it's not, I'm not saying that from just for me. I think uh, some of the best writers in North America are, are there. And if you're a fan of the NFL like I am or a fan of Major League Baseball or whatever your sport is, good chance you're going to get some uh, unique creative deep dive content of your favorite team uh, through our site so you know what uh, download the app and uh, one of the nice things is we got uh, little promotions going on all the time there's a 50% off one I think going on right now uh, so that that would be uh, you know a great time to, to, to join us and see what we're all about and um, yeah Twitter is just uh, Ian underscore Mendez because I couldn't get the username back in the day without the underscore in there but I was I was never a guy that uh, when I started at Twitter uh, on Twitter, I didn't put, you know, Sportsnet, Ian Mendes. Then when I went to TSN, I didn't put TSN. I'm not putting the athletic because I don't know what's going to happen. I, I'm shifting jobs all the time. So I'm not one of these people that puts uh, my corporate name in front of my uh, my handle. So it's just Ian underscore Mendes. And the final question, we're asking everybody, given that this is the first 82-game season since 1819 and everybody's going back to the original division format, where do you see the Ottawa Senators finishing in the Atlantic Division this coming April? Okay. I'm going to say they finish fifth, but I'm not going to say whether or not they make the playoffs. Because you could. You could still finish fifth in the division 
and you could be the second wildcard team. Like all the both wildcard teams could come from the Atlantic. So I will say they finish fifth in the Atlantic, and I say they finish ahead of Buffalo, Detroit, and Montreal, and I think they have a chance to make the playoffs. Ian, thank you so much for doing this. Guys, my pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Hey, this is Craig Medalia from the Wally Mathot Show. You are listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. All right, we are back. Big thanks to Sans Banin from Buds All Day, Chris Katugas, and Ian Mendez. What a great episode that was. And you know what's funny, Tim? Did I or did I not say after last year's segments we were not going to do this again, and yet here we are, almost a year later, we did it, and we still had a great time doing it? Well, one, it's always so good to kind of tap the pulse of other fan bases to see where their thinking is so we can kind of make sure that we're not way off on a weird tangent place when we're looking at players. Two, it's always a great time uh, having Ian Mendez on the show, and it's incredible that he continues to come on and talk about getting hit with various objects at various places. And I think number three, we actually have people ask us to do this again, eh? I know. It's insane. Like, the fact is that we got people asking us... I think for myself, looking back on the segments themselves, Ian Mendes dropping the F-bomb, that is a top moment right there in the history of this show. Between that and uh, forcing uh, poor Sats Medin to... Uh, relive his relive trauma? His, or it was 3-1. Has to be right up there, yeah. Yeah, but in fairness... In fairness, we had to live our relive our trauma with names like Mats and Cujo being brought up. Yeah, well, fair enough, fair enough. But then again, is there really... I don't think there's a better way to start Season 5 of this show. I don't think so, man. I really, really don't think so. And you know what? Believe me, we've got some big plans for our fifth season. We'll talk about that in a later episode because there's just so, so much to talk about, so much to cover. So we're going to save that when we open our fifth season of podcasting. Okay. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug, Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it, because believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. You can find us on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network. You can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter, at Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901HoneyBadger. I'm at GreatWhiteGipster, G-R-8-W-Y-T-E-Gipster. If you want to shoot us an email to comment on the segments we did this evening with Sans Mondine, Chris Katugas, and Ian Mendez, shoot us an email at at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you're listening to iTunes, please give us that five-star rating and give us also a review. So, Ted, we got to talk about part two of our 2021-2022 season preview show, the American teams. Now, the four people that we've got covering these teams is going to be Todd Little for the Florida Panthers, Matthew Estes for the Tampa Bay Lightning, Mark Allred for the Boston Bruins. We also got Jake Rivard for the Detroit Red Wings, and Melissa Burgess for the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, and, uh, it's going to be nice having the American teams back, eh? It is. You know what? I'm going to say right now, I will once again, I will never, ever complain ever again about having to watch a Wednesday night shit fest versus 
say, a Phoenix, Buffalo, Arizona, Columbus, Anaheim, any of that dog stuff. Or even, I don't think, I don't know how many Sense fans are also going to have to complain about the California, the California road trip. Well, you're not going to hear us going to be complaining because we're on the coast. Yeah, fair enough, but I can't even imagine having to watch the Vancouver game from last season at 1 a.m. Well, you know what, Tim? How do you think Red Wing fans felt during those playoff runs when they were playing teams in the West Coast? Yeah, but that was at least good hockey. That was a team getting dumpstered by the Vancouver Canucks. Fair enough. Until next week, guys. I am your host, Dinner Gibson. And this has been Tim Jensen. Go Sens, guys.